VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, February the 1st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Paddy Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. Looking forward to speak with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So I don't know about you, David Williams, but I always, and I know this is mispronunciation, but it's February, not February, how it's written. But anyway, I'll go with February. Hopefully that's okay by you. So it's, you know, January went with the blink of an eye. And here we are in February, the fewest number of days in any month. No leap year this year, of course, so 28 days. But it really does feel like the longest month of the year, for me anyway. It's where winter starts to drag on. But here we go. Let's have a good start to the month of February here today. And as you know, I like to kick it off with a little bit of sports notes. This is sports-related, but it was back in 2004 at the Super Bowl. Janet Jackson and uh, what's that other kid? Justin Timberlake were on stage performing, and of course, it was the infamous wardrobe malfunction. It really brought some new crackdowns from the FCC about what can indeed be shown on the air and some delays so that people don't see what they saw that day. Anywho, Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction today, 2004. And as you know, I mean, I've spent a lifetime playing and being involved with and coaching sports. And, you know, I like to look at the bright side of it, but there are, unfortunately, a lot of black marks on Canada sports, Canadian sports. So, you know, there's lots of national news stories now about whether it be mental, verbal, emotional, and, yes, sexual abuse at the hands of coaches and managers or whoever's involved, and young athletes are being victimized. The stories are really quite devastating. Now, the big one in the news now is from the gymnastics community. This gym teacher has been arrested and charged with several counts of sexual assault against very young girls. I mean, it's very troubling and almost difficult to talk about, but we can't leave it in the shadows. The unfortunate reality is the national sports organizations get the lion's share of the money invested by the federal government to talk about sexual abuse or any level of abuse, any type of abuse, and prevention programs and training and what have you. But the reality is, the vast majority of these incidents takes place well below the level of national sports organizations, at the grassroots level. So, and we've been, we've seen it right here. I know of a couple, for sure, off the top of my head, uh, investigations into sexual abuse. There was a figure skating coach here in this province, here in the city, as a matter of fact, that was charged. So, here's some numbers on the CBC News and Sports Investigation. They revealed more than 200 coaches and again, mostly at the local level, have been charged with a sexual offense against athletes under their care since 1998. Another 83 coaches have been charged or convicted across multiple sports, provinces, and jurisdictions. So as much as I enjoy the mental escape of watching and participating in sports, this is part of the conversation, and if you would like to pick it up where I'm leaving it off this morning, we can do it, but making making sports safe for all Canadians has got to be a real it's going to take all hands to dig in and make sure this happens. So at the federal level, they, you know, we've had inquiries, and this all stemmed basically from Hockey Canada scandals, but it's across the gamut of sports, and it's happening at the local level. So to see some more of that money and effort and attention flow down to the grassroots levels is going to be pretty important stuff, and I know that's a tricky one to talk about, but we can and should. 
So apparently some pretty treacherous road conditions in many parts of the northern Avalon Peninsula, up the Bonavista Peninsula, the Clarenville area. So there's going to be a delayed opening for schools. I think they're closed for the morning in most of those areas. And on the school front, so yesterday was the last day for Tony Stack. Of course, Tony, Tony Stack was the CEO and superintendent of the English-speaking school district, and during this phase of blending it into the Department of Education, Tony Sack spent 37 years in the education system, teacher, and the last five years he's been the CEO of the district itself. I think he's done important and quality work. I mean, I'm not involved in the inner machinations of education, but just think about all the people at the helm and in positions of authority trying to navigate the pandemic. And Mr. Stack says they've learned a lot. He has no regrets. He says this, mistakes were made. There was no textbook on how to handle it in the education system. And remember the talk used to go something like this. Schools should be the first to open and the last to close. When we were talking about the fits and starts of businesses being closed and all the things that we all have painful memories of over the last two and a half plus years. So Mr. Stack is now, been re is now retired. Terry Hall is the interim CEO at this moment in time. So, you know, inside the education system, and again, I'm always a little bit surprised with what takes off with feedback, mostly in the form of email, although I prefer a phone call. So inside the schools, and they now talk about, you know, some of the lessons learned from the hybrid model and the opportunities to remote learn. So now they're offering core French through virtual learning because they figured it out a little bit more and the technology is a little bit more better understood by teachers so they can go to more rural, remote parts of the province, deliver core French through a computer screen. So some of those lessons have been learned. And, you know, I guarantee you, after just one call yesterday about cell phones in the classroom, got a couple of dozen emails. Curiously, now most of them say the, they agree that cell phones had, should not be in the hands of the students as they're sitting in the class trying to absorb the curriculum, but a couple were... You know, saying, leave my kid alone and leave my cell phone alone or their cell phone alone. But that's a curious one if you want to pick up on it. And then, you know, uh, in the world of French, the folks down in Stephenville have been told that French immersion will be available this upcoming school year, but it's only a commitment to one year. So that uncertainty has given many people pause. And I'll put this one back out there again, because it's not just about one virus or one issue or another with air quality. What's the regime for testing air quality in public spaces, especially in schools? And yes, of course, hospitals and long-term care facilities, all the congregant living facilities. But what is the actual process here? What are the protocols? How often is it done? Do people get to see the results? And I'll put that out there for your consideration here this morning. And heard Brian Medor in the VOC newscast talking about one story regarding an emergency vehicle and an accident that happened unnecessarily or a collision. So when we think about first responders and emergency vehicles, of course, you think about fire trucks and police cars and ambulances. But another one of those vehicles is indeed a tow truck. When their lights are engaged, the flashing lights above the vehicle, when they're engaged, they're in the process of doing their tow truck work. And in this incident, there was the lights were on, the flatbed was about to be loaded with a vehicle that was broke down alongside of the road, and someone oncoming traffic, or traffic coming up behind, I suppose, just didn't give a wide enough berth to the tow truck. Consequently, there was a collision, and the car ended up on its roof. So we've got to factor in the tow truck when we are mindful of these first responder vehicles, emergency response vehicles, because not many people consider the tow truck in that envelope, but it absolutely is. So keep that in mind. So we talked about the other day the fact that they've now begun to do traveling orthopedic surgeries, basically for nip and heat, nip, how come I can't say that? Hip and knee replacement. And so it's had some successes. They've already been up to the Charles S. Curtis Memorial Hospital in St. Anthony. 
There's over 3,000 people waiting for these replacements here in the province. So this isn't biting off a big load, but of course it will help address the backlog. So they can do as many as 300 of these types of surgeries per year, which of course will be very beneficial for the folks waiting. And especially if you're waiting in a community that is so far removed from a, a hospital where you can get this replacement work done. So this is a good one. And I just understood or first found out about this next story regarding traveling healthcare. When Dr. Sean Connors and the Premier and Minister Osborne talked about a new program that they're calling Heart Force One. So what's happening is that they're flying patients in from different parts of the province to get a cardiac catheterization procedure done here at the Health Sciences Centre. Now, I don't really know exactly what procedure we're talking about. Is it the dye test where they, they pump in the dye, they're able to identify the blockages, what treatments might be required, but it's a fly in and fly out. Now, it does on its face sound like it's a pretty expensive approach, but think of it this way as well. There are people who are lying in hospital beds or in acute care beds, unable to be discharged until they get this dye test or the catheterization procedure at least. So they're flying them in and flying them out. Now, the cost to be in a hospital or an acute care bed per day is in the neighborhood of between $700 and $1,000. So you can indeed do a lot more cost-efficient work when you travel the patient in and out on the same day. Some concerns that have been voiced is that when we already have a shortage of nurses and the, uh, the pressures being felt by registered nurses in particular, there's going to be a healthcare professional travel back to your community with you on the aircraft. That sounds like it's going to be a nurse, so I wonder what kind of pressures that will bring to bear. But they say this is not only better care, it's efficient care. And they've been doing this for a little while. Apparently some 25 patients have had this procedure. So it all makes sense to me when we're looking for different approaches to healthcare, if that can be more cost-efficient to get people seen, remove some of their anxiety and worry quicker than they would have had they been waiting for their turn in town, then this is probably a very good plan. So we'll see what becomes of it. But, you know, there are applause coming from certain corners, including the leader of the opposition, David Brazel. You know, he says, it's great to see the government being proactive, finally, around healthcare, letting healthcare professionals find creative solutions to providing health interventions for people of Newfoundland and Labrador. So if you're one of those patients assessed by need, and whether or not travel is by a, uh, via air is the right idea for you, that might be very, very helpful. So two moves in the recent past to try to make things better. Okay. You know, when we hear the big national conversation, and, you know, a lot of it comes from the province of Ontario, where they're now going to see some surgical procedures take, take place in for-profit centers. So it's the whole thought of privatization of healthcare. Now, sometimes that comes across as very fearful. You know, we look to what it looks like and the costs associated with needing medical care in the United States, when we don't have to mimic that model. There's already plenty of instances of private health care in this province and in this country. If you go to a general practitioner's clinic, they're a subcontractor. They're simply billing MCP, but they're a standalone independent business. Uh, dental care is private. There's lots of private offerings, for instance, like for blood collection, what have you. And they, right inside the hospital itself, there's private offerings of dietary services, housekeeping, lab services, linens, all those types of things. So when we talk about privatization, you know, there's already something going on, but I do think it's important because healthcare, as it was uh, crafted with the Canada Health Act back in 1984, saying that we are not able, Canadians will not be billed for private services, the so-called concept of extra billing. 
So in Ontario, for instance, they're finding the workaround by simply allowing the patients and the doctors build their healthcare plan, OHIP, which is much like RMCP, so they don't contravene the Health Act. Now, you know, some of the problems associated with more expansion of private health offerings, I think, are very real. Where do the healthcare professionals come from? So if they come out of the public system to work in a for-profit, that doesn't really ease the burden and the backlogs and the wait times and the hope for more positive healthcare outcomes. We know the system needs to be fixed, I'll use that word, because it's not working as, as it's intended. And then one of the concerns also voiced by folks is if there's more and more private offerings, especially by physicians, then what happens? They'll be able to turn away whatever patients that they don't want to service or treat, quite possibly. So folks with the most complex needs would remain in the public system. Those with more minor needs, less complicated, may indeed find themselves in a private clinic, maybe with the ability to bill MCP, but we're shuffling around healthcare professionals when we already have a shortage in the public system as it exists. But there's lots of pleas and rally cries coming, for instance, from federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. So you're going to hear a lot of talk about private, private offerings because every single province and territory are fighting very similar battles with trying to keep the system afloat and to find minor repairs or solutions where they can. So anyway, we can take that on. And every now and then I get the distinct feeling that there's a coordinated effort, and in this case, once again, email effort, and this one is about wind energy. There was like 31 proposals being considered, but the one that gets all the attention is World Energy GH2 out on the Port of Port Peninsula. So whether we see the folks at Energy NL, formerly NOIA, the province's oil and gas association, their campaign with wind at our back, promoting wind energy, whether it be green hydrogen or otherwise. Folks on the Port of Port Peninsula, just going to take a guess that I got about a dozen emails overnight, kind of out of the blue, haven't been really talking much about it, and we certainly can, pushing back against the project in full for a variety of reasons, whether it be water quality because of that, that uh, monitoring tower that they're putting up, all the way to 164 wind turbines, and some of it is not in my backyard kind of stuff, the uh, environmental impacts, whatever angle people are taking. But in addition to those pushback emails, got about the same number of folks who were all in on these wind energy pro uh, proposals and potential projects. So, yes, we can absolutely take it on. And some of the concern surrounds crown lands and the usage of crown lands. Thankfully, we're going down a lease kind of a avenue or a road regarding crown lands as opposed to simply selling it. And who knows if the project would be long-term viable and then what becomes of that very valuable piece of land. So you can only hope that government not only can figure that out and do their due diligence to protect our crown lands, and we'll extend that back into families and individuals and the crown lands issue that so many families are finding themselves now with the it's come a time they're selling or downsizing just to find out that they don't even own the land that the family home has been on in some cases for decades. So that's up for your consideration. And also what we don't hear talked a lot about in this province, but a lot of it going on in the province of Quebec is hydro. Premier Legault in Quebec is talking a lot about hydro, knowing that the preparations for 2041 are well underway, but talking a lot about Gull Island. Like, if you look at the Quebec papers, there's a lot of talk about hydro. In addition to that, and I don't know if Gull is going to ever happen in this province, but people are justifiably gun-shy about mega-projects, especially ones on the Churchill River. And then the story regarding the Inu Nation and their pushback. They say Gull Island is dead. 
no matter what, until there is some compensation or a new, new deal negotiated regarding monies coming from the Muscrat Falls project. When the quote-unquote rate mitigation measures were taken, which is good for us ratepayers if it, it does indeed work the way it's intended to work, but as a result, revenues flowing to the new nation are going to be reduced throughout the lifetime of the project, about a billion dollars, they say. So and that was all based on the New Dawn Agreement, right? Gave the government the go-ahead or the so-called permission to go ahead with that particular project, but they say that they'll do whatever it takes to make sure that there's no further hydroelectric dam work done on that river until that's negotiated and figured out. So that's a big one for sure. Also in the world of uh, voluminous feedback is the story about Shirley Cox, an 82-year-old woman being evicted from Riverhead Towers here in the city of St. John's. There's, you know, of course, an elderly disabled woman being evicted in the heights of winter is troublesome no matter how you slice it. What makes it even worse is the miscommunication or the disconnect in communication when the councillor for the area, Councillor Ophelia Ravencroft, says there was a negotiated eviction date between Ms. Cox, her community partners, and the city. Of course, because the city administers the housing at River, Riverhead Towers. Ms. Cox says no such thing. There was no negotiation. In addition to that, and this makes the story even worse in my mind, is they won't even tell her why. You know, it's all bad enough she's being evicted. So people are thinking it's because she's a smoker. She doesn't smoke in her apartment. She goes out by the door. She has a hard time navigating her wheelchair to the so-called smoking section. So if that's the reason, at least she deserves to be told that. What she's been told is, we don't have to give you a reason. Well, why? You know what? I think you do. I think she deserves a reason. I think we deserve to know what's going on here. So a lot of frustrated residents, and even people from other parts of the province, because this is a heartstring tugger, isn't it? An 82-year-old, elderly, disabled woman being evicted. She thinks she might have to move to a care home out in uh, CBS. She's been living independently and now may indeed have a share an apartment with someone. So that story is really uncomfortable, I will say, the very least as it's uncomfortable. And okay, how are we doing on the telephone there, David? Very quickly before we get uh, to your calls. So here we are, the Mon Faculty Association strike continues today, day number three. One of the stories that we're understanding more and more now is if this is extended uh, job action, there's some 70 nurses set to graduate. What happens if that doesn't happen? I mean, it's just one of those stories where we talk about the faculty association, their needs, whether it be collegial governance and more than one seat on the Board of Regents and the amendments to provincial legislation to accommodate that. But on the ground, we haven't heard a whole, whole lot about the impact on the student. And I know I don't think the administration and or the province or the faculty association have turned a deaf ear and a blind eye to the students, but these personal stories, whether it be healthcare, uh, people uh, learning healthcare disciplines, you know, 70 nurses, that could create a problem where, you know, and if this is all about amending the University Act, which I know is a large, cumbersome piece of legislation, if that's going to be what settles it, and if you hear from the faculty association, they say it's not about money. So if it's not, then let's see if we can get that accommodated to switch so we can just move on with this particular semester. And I was calling it the fall semester, but it's the winter semester. Anywho. All right, a good piece of news before we get to the breaking your calls. Congratulations, good luck, fingers crossed, for Susan Evoy. So Music Count is, has a Teacher of the Year Award presented by the CST Foundation. It's been happening every year since 2005. Susan Evoy is one of five nominees for the teacher, Music Teacher of the Year Award. 
She teaches at both St. Teresa's Elementary and Waterford Valley High School here in the city of St. John's. So bravo to Susan Evoy and the work that she's doing. And hopefully she'll be announced the winner, and that's going to happen at the upcoming Juno Awards. Go get them, Susan. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number four. Good morning, Liam. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, I'm uh, doing too bad. Okay. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. Terrific, love it. I'm uh, calling in regards of uh, the Munn strike, actually. Uh, to me, it's a very uh, very concerning thing that uh, the government hasn't really stepped in here and kind of kind of gave us a bit of a piece of their their mind on on what's going on here. Um, so we did hear a little bit from the Premier yesterday. It wasn't a whole lot, certainly no detailed response to what the government could or should or would do. So what would you like to hear? What do you think is missing here in the conversation? I, I believe uh, what's missing is um, that I believe they need to step in now as uh, as either a mediator or uh, you know an arbitrator here to kind of get this resolved. I get that thought because a quick resolution is in everybody's best interest, most importantly the student's best interest. The what I think is the snag or the snarl here is, for starters, I don't really like the feel of government getting too involved in labor negotiations. There's a potential problem when if it, if it becomes more and more common. But what they do have is the they're the only body that has the authority to amend the memorial. Pardon me, the Memorial University Act, the legislation that governs the university, and that has to be done to satisfy one of the major demands coming from the faculty association is more than one seat on the Board of Regents. So they do have that arrow in their quiver. How quickly they attend to that, I have no idea. But beyond that, what do you think they should do? You think they should be like formally arbitrating this issue? I, I truly believe at this at this stage, because you know it's it's you know you know it's concerning. You know when we don't have our students back in back in class and getting ready to you know convocate from from you know this year yeah. and get back in the workforce. So I do believe that they do have the they have the authority here, and I believe they really need to step in, step up. Well, they're already intimately involved. The funding for the university, in large part, comes from the uh, provincial government. There was all this conversation about you know following a template for bargaining with the public sector, and the same thing goes for the faculty association. The template has looked a lot more like 2% per annum, but in this case, we're talking about 12% over four years, 6% increase in the first year, so they haven't followed that boilerplate. So the government is already involved in some form, and if they're going to play their role in settling it, then they're probably going to have to open up that uh, legislation. And I don't know how quick it can be done, because it's a pretty cumbersome piece and a massive piece of legislation, but that and that alone is something they should be at very, very quickly. Indeed, yeah, and get this resolved quick. As uh, I've heard on the show before, that uh, Mon can handle a week, maybe two. If it goes past that, uh, I hate to see what happens. And, you know, I've got a bit of built-in bias here. I have a university student son at home, and his courses have all been compromised at this moment, so he's in limbo, just playing the waiting game like the rest of us. But I'm sure the university itself, the faculty association, and certainly students, even though Munn's Student Union is in full-throated support of the, uh, of the faculty, they still need to have their fellow students back in the classroom as soon as possible. We cannot afford to have a lost semester. No, exactly, and I, I agree with 110%. I just wanted to get my thoughts on, uh, on the matter on the air, Patty. I, I'm glad you did, Liam. Are you a student at Munn? I'm not a student at Munn, no. I am um, 
Uh, like I said, I'm biased. I have uh, several several cousins that are doing engineering, and one is doing business. And the three of them convocate this year. And I'm also, uh, you know, an aspiring youth politician. So I'm uh, trying to get uh, trying to get my opinions on the air now and get noticed a little bit. Well, I'm glad that you made time for the program as a first time caller this morning, Liam. Thanks a lot. Stay in touch. Thank you very much, Paddy. Have well, a good day. You too. Bye bye. Yeah, I'd like to see that come to a head here at ASCP. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Bonavista. That's Craig Pardy. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. A very good start for your previous caller there, Liam. Yep. Um, yeah, first caller did a good job. Uh, Patty, want to discuss the, the health care, especially the emergency room on the, um, on the Bonavista Peninsula and Bonavista in particular. Um, uh, before I get into a, a few comments on that, I want to, again, give a shout-out to the rally line, those concerned citizens who show up consistently on Hospital Road just in order to rally for health care within the Bonavista area. And I think, you know, they've been doing it since July. Uh, it is not a protest, but it certainly is a rally to make sure that we bring and keep attention on uh, for our emergency room in Bonavista. We're going to be in for a tough month of February uh, with the emergency room in Bonavista. And, um, and I would say the data shows that there are a lot of needs and, um, and a high level of, uh, of needs that would need to be addressed or that are addressed at the Bonavista the hospital. The minister has stated publicly that um, he is competing with other jurisdictions, and, and he's right. We, we all know that. We all know that uh, when he states that it is a provincial, it is a national, it is an international issue, and we all agree. We do that. So he does state that he's got to compete with other jurisdictions, and, and he stated that, you know, conceivably he may even to ante up to make sure that we stay competitive. The biggest factor in Bonavista the emergency room, is the comparable pay to those that would occur in Category A hospitals. Bonavista is a health center. Uh, the government classed it as a Category B. The data in Bonavista is not radically different from several of the Category A uh, hospitals. Now, uh, when I say several of the Category A hospitals, I'm not talking about the health sciences or St. Clair's. I'm talking about some others that would be in that classification. It serves an emergency need that would be in Bonavista. The physicians that would work the ER in Bonavista, with the incentives that have been uh, added to their base pay, will get approximately 63 to 64% of what they would get in uh, a Category A hospital. We would have trouble competing, and we do have trouble competing with that. And I would suggest that uh, the rally line, many of the signs that they would hold, was give us a fighting chance by having the same amount of pay for a doctor that would work in Bonavista with the data provided by uh, Quality of uh, Health NL, that the same as what it would be in, in Category A, and that would give us a uh, level playing field to compete for physicians. And I'd like to add that we've got two or three physicians that are interested in staying in Bonavista, but again, uh, what happens is they go to other centers, 
Category A, out of province, and and again, because the remuneration would be much higher than what it would be, it would be the Category A status. So we feel that in order for us to compete here in Bonavista, one step that the government can do, one step they can do is give us parity with the Category A pay, and then it is what it is, and let us then uh, pull whatever ever strategy we can to make sure that we recruit physicians here in uh, in Bonavista. Of course, that would be the hope that if I was the member, I'd be promoting the exact same thing. How many different categories are there for healthcare offerings? How many are are, are categorized the same as Bonavista? Do we know? Uh, I, I don't know offhand, but I would think probably in Eastern Health, we probably got. Uh, Eight to twelve, Patty, that would be there, and I, I would say of those eight to twelve, the data would indicate that that Bonavista would be the busiest in Eastern Health, of the health centers, and, and again, the servants of those that would be on the acuity scale for uh, seriousness of visits, uh, again, Bonavista would be the highest in in Eastern Health of those community centers. The only reason I ask because, as you and I both know, and everyone listening would know that if that change or accommodation is made to make the rate of pay the same in Bonavista as it would be in the level A offerings, that means that every one of the other, whether it be 8 or 12, the demand would very quickly, immediately come for their uh, employees as well, I assume. Yeah, and remember now, we, we've, got, you know, we've got 58 communities on the Bonavista Peninsula. Mm-hmm. What we're looking for is an emergency room coverage that would have parity with other emergency room Coverages, so it is a regionalization or regional, um, you know, um, ask that we've got. Uh, it's often misstated that physicians should receive equivalent pay for equivalent work. Sure, and, and nobody disagrees with that. You got a nurse in Bonavista, a nurse in Bonavista would get the same as a nurse in Clarenville, the same as a nurse in the health sciences, barring some kind of specialty. Um, um, I was a teacher. The same, whether it be in Kingscove or Bonavista or Holy Heart, would get the same. The doctor, the physician that works the emergency room, gets significantly less than what they would in Category A. So if the government, and we don't have many tools in our toolbox, apparently, but I would say that is one thing that the government can do to put us on a level footing in order to compete to make sure that we get physicians and maintain Keep open our emergency room that serves close to 10,000 people on the bottom of the peninsula. Where is the shortage to that, that's led to the doors being closed? So is it just one doctor? Is it no nurse practitioner? Is it no lab services? Like what exactly is going on that sees the doors closed? They've got to have an emergency room physician. There's got to be a doctor on site uh, in the hospital. And, and basically, if there is no doctor that's available to cover the emergency room, then what we have is that there's no dialysis that would go on. There's no acute care um, patients that would be in the hospital. So everything would have to be moved. Patients in acute care would have to be moved to Clarenville if they have capacity. Um, so it really, it disrupts the whole functionality down there uh, in the Bonavista, on the Bonavista Peninsula, when we do not have a physician to cover the emergency room. And if we look at the economic uh, value of the area of Bonavista, Patty, and that's a different discussion for a different time, but if we look at tourism and fishery, I think most people would agree that we are a significant economic value or of significant uh, value to the province. 
Now we look at and say, here we are with the funding of the physicians that would keep the emergency room open, that we find that, well, they're, they're only getting you know, 63 to 64% of what they would get in, in Category A. And that is a significant factor that we find uh, in Bonavista that is not a permitting or allowing us to keep the physicians that would be interested in, in staying because they'll often go to do locum somewhere else. Once mm-hmm. they leave to go to do locum somewhere else, uh, then we find that then that's when we have the problem with uh, the emergency room closing. And that is what we're facing in February. So the government made one incremental increase on December the 19th to bridge that gap further, which, which is commendable. But what they did is they bridged it to bring it to 63 to 64%. I would say... Uh, for the government to provide parity and let us compete, much the same as Mr. Osborne or the minister would state that he is competing with other provinces, Newfoundland and Labrador, which is what he ought to be doing, uh, let us compete with others as well um, internally within the province. Understood. I appreciate this this morning, Craig. Thanks for the call. All right. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That's Craig Pratt. He's the PC member for Bonavista. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we mentioned tow truck uh, drivers and tow truck operators and that incident or collision that we saw. John Deneen is a tow truck owner and operator. He's up next. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, sir. Are you John Denine or John Denine? Denine. Denine. Welcome to the show. Good morning, sir. Um, I'm going to call about that accident yesterday with the tow truck there on the highway there. Uh, I'm a, first of all, I don't know what happened there, so I'm not going to say whose fault it was or it wasn't or anything else. I don't want to make that quite clear because uh, accidents do happen, you know. But um, I've been at this now 40 years, and I'm at the scene some... Crazy things people do, like, I mean, they're shouting and bawling at you on the side of the road. They don't move over. Not only tow truck drivers, in the meantime, now I get ahead of myself. Uh, any emergency operator on the side of the highway. And I mean anybody. I mean, some people just don't care or they don't know. I don't know. It was, it was, I don't know what it is. I really don't know. But I'm after having some really scary close calls. And, I mean, it's amazing the way people, they don't slow down. The law is you're supposed to slow down. You're supposed to move over, you know. Or if you can't move over, at least slow down. And I mean, you know, and, and people wonder why the highways are closed every time there's an accident. Because, I mean, everybody got to work in a safe environment. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, we, we sometimes we have to bear the road off, and people are going by and they're blowing the horn and they're cursing, swearing, and they're putting their finger up to you. But the same person on the other side of the coin, if they're off the road, say, "My God, what's wrong with these people?" You know. I don't understand it myself. Well, I mean, we see it all the time, right? You know, people yep. will take the flag persons to task, you know, and yep. the fingers and the, the uh, beeps and the curses and all the rest. People are just doing their job. And, you know, yep. to put them in at risk, I mean, it's not that many years ago right here on the Outer Ring Road, someone alongside of the road working was struck and killed. So yep. we can't have that. And a tow truck, you know, it's unfortunately the story had to happen for me to want to, uh, for me to remember to mention the fact that we treat the tow trucks with their lights engaged as an emergency vehicle. 
They're taking a vehicle that's in a perilous spot, out of harm's way, so we have to let you and others like you do your job safely. So when you see the tow truck pulled over, lights on, they're doing uh, they're doing an important piece of work, so give them a wide berth. Slow down. If you have to change lanes or whatever you have to do to make sure that we don't have another tragic incident on the highway or the byways, we have to do it. But I mean, even I see police cars get people pulled over on the side of the road. And I mean, I mean, same with police cars. You're supposed to pull over. I mean, these officers are getting out of their cars. I don't I mean, sometimes there's one or they don't say, listen, no, you, you won't go that fast, whatever. Listen, I'm going to go after the guy that almost ran over me. I mean, that's what they need. I mean, this law needs to be enforced big time. I mean, I know, I mean, that man was lucky yesterday and, and we've been lucky in Newfoundland that we've never had no one killed. Not that I know of by a, a car not moving over. But I was just looking at it on, on different things like down the States. I know there's a lot more people in there here, you know. But as a tow truck driver killed every six days in, in nationwide, you know. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, like, wow. it's crazy. I mean, I read it all the time. I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of dry, hurt or kill. And I mean, it's, and most of us over, basically, I mean, people not obeying the laws. I mean, it is the law. I mean, I mean, we cannot do our job and face what's, look, watch for cars coming speeding towards us. I mean, we're, our back is turned. I mean, we're trying to get that car out of a ditch or, or a bad car crash or whatever, and we got to get down the truck safely and as fast as we can and get get the hell out of there. You know, I mean, I don't want to be up on the side of the outer ring road. I mean, I mean these nerves are steel after 40 years to be actually be up there. And not only that, you got a lot on your mind. I mean, you, you go to some actions that are pretty bad type of thing. And, I mean, that's, that affects you also. People don't think it do, but it does. I mean, I can remember actually I went to, like, 30 years ago that I'll never forget. You know, that kind of way. And, I mean, we, and we think about this stuff all the time. And, I mean, then you got some guy that's speeding on the road and blowing his horn. And, and they would sometimes, I mean, just, they can move up, but they just don't. Or they don't, I don't know if they think they don't, they got the right to stay in, in that lane. I don't know what it is. I think there are people are just oblivious. You know, sometimes all the well-intentioned folks out there who, before they get in their vehicle, are mindful of being aggressive and the distance they travel behind other vehicles. And yes, to pull over when you hear the sirens coming, what have you. But all of a sudden, things change. You get in the rig, you start her up, and all of a sudden, you're oblivious and you're mindless and you're reckless and you're aggressive, and you're just you're hell bent for leather to get where you're going as fast as you can. Versus. You know, safety first. I used to drive way too fast. I mean, when I was younger, I was ridiculous behind the wheel too. But now I'm a bit more mindful because I want to get home safely. And I see so many people that are driving just so fast and aggressively in town. It's unbelievable. You're going nowhere in a hurry. I will see you, literally, I will see you at the next red light. Yeah, I mean, what we're doing now, and I know, I mean, we're I wonder about not like Ontario and other places. Tow truck drivers are basically cutting each other's throat here in here in, in St. John's, and all over the island, basically. I mean, we're all pretty good friends, type of thing, you know. And if I'm up on the outer ring road and I'm going by, and one, one of the other companies there, my competition is there, and they're trying to get a vehicle aboard the truck, I'll pull in behind them and I'll turn my lights on. I mean, which is, you know, is a little bit more help so that you got a couple of trucks with flashing lights as to. One stopped it by itself, and then I can get out and stand on the inside lane and say, "Listen, by Nick, we know if I happen to see someone come speeding by, just be careful. There's a car coming there that's not going to move over." Which, you know, we we try to help each other out, which is, you know, in the long run, it's it's good that way. You know, we got we got a good communication with the with the companies here. You know. Well, that's good news because many industries are very cutthroat. So as uh-huh. long as people know that. You know, the business will indeed get divvied around. There might be some winners and there might be some folks who wish they were doing a bit better, but that doesn't mean that you have to be at each other and mean-spirited or undercutting them or whatever the case may be. John, I'm glad you called this morning. Anything else you want to say? 
No, no, that's good. Thank you so much, and have a good day. Same to you, sir. All the best. Stay safe out there. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go line number two. Good morning, Don Connolly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. It's been a long while. It has friend. so. How are you, Don? I'm not doing too bad, my friend. Okay. I'm still keeping her going one step at a time. That's all I can take, right? Good to hear. It's good to have you back on the show. What's going on, Don? Well, Patty, I wanted to get uh, the word out there to the blind and visually impaired community uh, that hopefully this year, this uh, this summer, August 13th to the 19th, um, the adult camp for the blind will resume at the Lyme Maxims Memorial Camp out in Bishop's Falls. We've unfortunately had to cancel each year uh, because of the pandemic. We were close to having it last year, but unfortunately some things happened and we, we decided we had to cancel. But we're going back at it this year, and we want to get the word out to newly blind and visually impaired individuals around the island that there is an adult camp for the blind. It's an opportunity for people to to come out, meet other blind and visually impaired people in a very friendly and relaxed atmosphere, uh, get involved with some sport and recreational activities, but more importantly, to also uh, have an opportunity to speak to other blind and visually impaired people about the, the things that bug them about being visually impaired. Um, how do you do this? I don't know how people can get along if you can't do this, and I can't do it. How do you get around that problem? And, you know, there's so much information that's shared uh, with the individuals out there um, outside of that just basic recreation and sporting and, and, and vacation sort of mode situation, that it's just an incredible rehabilitation process, uh, you know, under the guise of a, of a, of a, of a wonderful week uh, camp and, and an opportunity to make some new friends. So if there's anybody out there that's blind or visually impaired or has a, an, a, a family member, and this is, by the way, an adult camp, but there is a, the CNIB runs a, a, a youth camp for the blind or visually impaired as well, but this is for an adult camp for the blind. Um, if you've got a, a vision impairment yourself or if you've got a family member uh, that might benefit from our camp, we'd really love to hear from you. We need to get this word out and get some new campers out and on the go, uh, they can give me a call or they can give our new camp coordinator a call. Uh, we've got a new camp coordinator this year in the name of uh, Patricia Dwyer. Pat is a, um, uh, she's the current uh, president of the Cornerbrook Lions Club. And uh, as you know, Patty, Lions across, right across the world um, are the Knights of the Blind. And they really step up and do the work for blind and visually impaired people. And Pat has stepped up and, and uh, offered to assist us to coordinate the camp this year. And uh, she'd love to hear from newly blind and visually impaired individuals or anybody um, to, um, uh, that might be interested in this camp to be able to explain a little bit more about it and, and, and hopefully get an application sent out to you um, to, uh, uh, you know, to, to get involved in, and, and active in this uh, summer's camp. So what do they have to do to sign up? They, they can contact Pat, and her phone number is 709-634-0900. Yep. Okay. Um, and uh, Pat can walk them through the process. Um, we will let other uh, 
former campers know that there will be uh, letters on the way out to very soon. And we'll let the Lions Clubs across the province know that there's going to be letters of request and information going out to you guys as well very soon. Um, asking for your continued support. Uh, like I said, Pat, uh, Patty, the, uh, uh, without the Lions Clubs and other service clubs, uh, but primarily the Lions Club, uh, this camp wouldn't be able to take place. They, the Lions step up and do so much for the blind and visually impaired community, and they really need to be recommended for the job that they do. Is there a cost to attend, Don? There is a cost to attend, uh, $330 for the week, but a lot of service clubs and, and, and Lions Clubs uh, will sponsor somebody to be able to do that. So if uh, you have somebody, you know, we find out somebody, uh, from let's just say Bonavista. We were just talking to a gentleman from uh, about Bonavista. Um, if somebody in Bonavista uh, contacts us and and uh, wishes to get involved with this camp, we'll go through the application process and uh, depending on their own financial needs, we'll probably assist them uh, to get in touch with one of the Lions clubs down in Bonavista area, be it the Bonavista Lions, Port Rexton, Port Union, uh, one of those Lions clubs in the area to see if they can be of some sort. Um, so we'll, we'll assist them to do that. Uh, we'll make sure that if you want to get to that camp, we will find a way to get you out to that camp. Don't worry about the finances. Um, we'll, we'll hopefully get you there somehow, somewhere. But we want to let people know that there is a great opportunity to learn, coordinate with people, uh, uh, get new friends, and, and just learn, uh, uh, try to get over that answer of what bugs me about being blind. Appreciate this, Don. And for folks who are interested, you can give Pat a call at area code 709-634-0912. Don't be a stranger, Don. Stay in touch. Pat, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. You're continuing to debate. Uh, I might be a stranger on the line, but I'm always listening. So appreciate that, Don. You're doing a great job. Buddy. Thanks, buddy. Talk soon. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, I believe it's Eating Disorder Awareness Week, right? So Vince Withers from the Eating Disorder Foundation, Newfoundland and Labrador, is in the queue. He's next. And then the rest of you, we appreciate your patience. We'll get to you. We're talking crab fishery, hydroponic opportunities, and more. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, it is indeed Eating Disorder Awareness Week. Join us on line number one as the founder and the chairperson of the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Vince Withers. Good morning, Vince. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad. Long time, no talk. Yeah, it's been a while. I, I just left the Confederation Building now where we raised the flag and uh, signed a proclamation declaring eating soda week in the province. And uh, it reminded me to give you a call and just once again talk about uh, eating disorders. Uh, I saw a story last night on TV that uh, heart and stroke have about 2.4 million people in the country suffering from a heart and stroke. And I wanted to remind us that there are 1.7 million people in Canada suffering from disordered eating or an eating disorder. And that means about 25,000 people in our province. So it's an epidemic, and I guess you heard me say that a number of times. And it's the most severe mental health disorder of all, Patty, and that's a startling piece of information. And it's the most complex. And the recovery period takes a long period of time. It's a uh, it's, uh, it's, as I said, a complex uh, eating disorder, and uh, and when people hear me say it's a mental health disorder, that's what it is. It's not a fad. I've heard it described as, you know, we'll get over this in time, but it 
it's not just that. It's a it's a serious issue and requires professional help. The uh, I refer to it as an epidemic because I can't find another word that properly describes it. Well, I think when we're talking about 1.7 million Canadians exhibiting symptoms, it can be absolutely referred to as an epidemic. You know, and we hear the, the phrases that, you know, eating disorders know no boundaries, and I've heard that one many times in the past. Mm-hmm. And just the way we think about and talk about eating disorders has changed over time. It's not that long ago, I think the vast majority of Canadians would have thought an eating disorder, well, that affects teenage girls. It's not that at all. It's across the, every age demographic, men and women. So, you know, it used to get shoved into that corner as a teenage girl issue when it's so much more complicated than that, and it impacts Canadians of all walks of life. Yeah, and, and the sad part about all this, it, it affects uh, mostly an adolescent population, of course. That's not the population that we need to see with a mental health disorder. And, uh, you know, when we started the foundation 18 years ago, Patty, it's interesting that people wouldn't leave their their last name, they wouldn't leave their email, they wouldn't leave their telephone number. Today, they're sitting around a boardroom table talking to each other about their own family experiences. So it's come a long way. While Eating Sort of Week is about awareness, I think it's also a period of celebration. You know, while well, we're, we're sad about what's happening. You know, we have to celebrate the many thousands of families that have come forward for treatment and support. And it's fair to say today we have a treatment program for all age groups. We have an inpatient program for over 18 and an inpatient outpatient program for under 18. And while we, you know, we can reflect on the serious nature of this, we have made a lot of progress thanks to VOCM and people like yourself who are getting the message out. Theo Simmons has been a long-time supporter of the foundation. It's all about awareness. Uh, you get awareness out there, people understand and start to come forward. But we have a great help from Eastern Health. The minister was there this morning helping us celebrate this. But the programs are there. They're good programs. They're well attended. While they're, they're short wait lists, uh, today I would challenge every family out there today who has an indication of an eating disorder, you should go to the family doctor. We need a diagnosis. Once a diagnosis occurs, of course, then we can start treating families. And the foundation, of course, is sort of a gateway. We call it a navigator. You get to us, and we'll put you in the right place. And uh, and uh, this week, I guess, is, as I said, is awareness, but it's also a celebration that things are working out pretty well. Well, we have a long ways to go. We're on the right path, I think, to to being able to at least try and mitigate the the impacts of an eating disorder. Research is not strong. There's not a lot of understanding of why this is happening to us. Uh, however, that's that's improving as well. But again, it's it's uh, uh, the most serious mental health disorder. It has the highest death rate of all mental health disorders. So I guess this is an alarm bell from me to. People listening to you this morning, pick up the phone, make that call, 722-0500, and uh, you can get the help you need. It might take a while, but we can get to you, and, and we'll make sure you're in the right place. Vince, you said something to me a number of years ago. When I talk about access to treatment or access to supports, 
to be careful how I say those things out loud because the downside, I don't know if you remember this, but the problem that I might even be responsible for creating, unfortunately, is if we talk about lack of access, whether it be rural versus urban or wait times to see psychiatrists or something, that people might think, well, there is no help there. So you gave me that reminder once, and I've never forgotten it, and I've actually referenced it many times without mentioning you by name. So... That's been helpful, and when messages are like, it might take some time, but we will get to you, is something I try to add to the conversation all the time. Uh, just a couple of quick ones here. You know, every time we have an Awareness Week, there's a theme. But the theme is much more important than simply sloganeering. Like this year, it's transforming the narrative from asks to action. So some examples in the past were the creation of the inpatient treatment for eating disorders uh, at the hospital here in town. So what other asks are out there at the top of the list that we need to see action on? Well, the, the biggest issue, I've been at this a long time, the biggest issue, trying to answer your question, is that people don't understand the two words, eating disorders. You know, if I, if I lined up 100 people outside of ERCM today, and ask them, do they understand cancer, diabetes, heart and stroke, you would get 100 people that would probably have a personal experience. But then when I come along and say, how many people in that group would, would understand an eating disorder, they would give me such a long list of issues that they consider to be an eating disorder. I had a gentleman once come in to me and said he had an eating disorder because he ate too much Kentucky Fried Chicken. And uh, so the dimension of an eating disorder, the two words don't serve us well because it's so difficult to explain an eating disorder as a clinical health disorder, mental health disorder, that our biggest problem is trying to get the message across that an eating disorder is a mental health disorder. There's nothing wrong with that, like all other disorders. So we're having difficulty, I guess, trying to explain to people that an eating disorder is a very serious mental health disorder. And I don't think those two words serve us well, and I can come up with some two different words that would explain that better. But people have a broad interpretation of an eating disorder, a very broad interpretation of an eating disorder. It can be a dozen different things. And I guess our message is always, always, it's a mental health disorder. And I guess it's, it's beginning to, I mean, we have 1,500 people come to us every year. And we make sure they're put in the right place. As I say, we're the navigator. So I guess our big challenge is trying to overcome this everybody's definition of an eating disorder and trying to put it in the right place by saying it's a mental health disorder. Uh, let's get on with it. But the message is getting through uh, to people. I mean, we have a, a lunch and learn today. We thought we'd get a dozen people to attend. I think we have over 40 people attending. So it's, it's getting through, but it takes a lot of awareness and a lot of messages like this to ring the alarm bell. That when I say it's an epidemic, I don't use that word, you know, without understanding what it means to people when they hear the word epidemic, but it is an epidemic. And the sad part about it all, I guess, is for families to understand that it affects primarily the adolescent population. Although, uh, your point earlier, is we're seeing now middle-aged people, more women, more men. Uh, so as we expand our awareness and understanding of a eating disorder, uh, many more age groups are beginning to come forward. So it's not primarily an adolescent uh, mental health disorder. It affects, as I said earlier, 
middle-aged people. We're seeing more men coming forward, Patty, than we have before, which is different because 80% of all eating disorders are generally women, 20% men, 70% of that 80 are usually adolescents. What concerns me most is that it's a, it takes a, re, a long recovery period, but if people think they can do this without proper medical care, they're wrong. It takes professional help. And, you know, going to your family doctor and getting that diagnosis is a starting point. And I can guarantee people that if they get that diagnosis and make that telephone call, there's help there. There's no reason for people to think that there's not help anymore. We've spent 18 years putting together these these programs, and they're good programs. I know all the people in those programs. Uh, we have today, as I speak right now, there's about 28 full-time people in those various programs just doing nothing today but working with eating sort of families. And go back to 15 years ago where you mentioned eating disorders, hardly anybody understood the, the term or could relate to it at all. Mm-hmm. And words matter, you know, it's a mental illness. It's much akin to, you know, we say bullying as a catch-all. That could be making fun of my freckles all the way to physical violence. We talk about concussions, like getting your bell rung, when it's a traumatic brain injury. So to understand the complexities and to put the proper labels on it goes a long way for awareness. And then hopefully reductions in the frequency of any of these particular issues. Uh, Vince, really appreciate the time this morning for families or individuals out there who think they need the help and they need the diagnosis, make the first step and call the folks at the Eating Disorder Foundation. Get yourself a diagnosis from your doctor. The number at the association is, or at the foundation, 722-0500. I appreciate your time, Vince. I am a longtime supporter of the foundation, way back to when we started a long time ago. Getting the message out is really important, and you guys have done a superb job helping us do that. We appreciate it, what you do, and we're happy to play a role. Thank you, Vince. Thanks very much. Take good care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Vince Withers is the founder and the chair of the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's time for the news. When we come back, lots of time for you. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Line number two, caller, you're on the air. And uh, you're on hold. Let's go to line number three. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Thank you for taking my call, Patty. I'm sorry to be calling so often, but believe me, the reason why I call in is because the public, the, the concerned citizens, asks me to call in. And I'm telling you the God's truth on different issues, and uh, some of them, has, like you know, has been the health care on Fogwell or the lack of health care. And, Patty, uh, the reason why I'm calling today is because that call yesterday triggered this call today. Uh, the call when he was talking about the health care in Fogelwell, and uh, he was, you know, he brought my name into it and Mayor Shea's name into it. And I, I heard Mayor Shea on there. I didn't get the first part of his conversation, that guy, but I got the later part. And uh, so that was concerning to me because uh, he, I guess what he's saying is that, you know, uh, the mayor and I are not working to try to get better health care on Fogel Island. And that's far from the truth. That's not what he said, though, Eugene. What, he's, what he said, Patty? Well, what he said was that 
I mean, I can't speak for him. I'll try to summarize it. He was basically frustrated that he and 2,800 other people who were on the patient roster of the doctor that's leaving St. John's to move to Fogo Island leaves him without a doctor. No more, no less, really. Uh, he didn't say that you or Mayor Shea or anybody weren't doing anything. He thinks that your efforts have made the difference to see his do- see him lose his doctor. That's the basics of what he said. That is complicated. For sure, yeah. But I know he did say also that uh, Eugene Nipper is probably getting to Andy Hare Ammons would be taking the doctors back and forth. Didn't he say that? Yeah, I don't know what the reference was to air ambulance necessarily, but I mean, you don't have an air ambulance to sell yourself as far as I know, so I don't really know what he meant by that. Well, I guess where I've been chaired here, I'm a medical transport group, and I've been trying to get better coverage for Fogo Island, which hasn't happened when we're only, it was only used for emergency once last year. So in Darnwell Show, we ain't going to use doctors back and forth. So I don't know what he's talking about there. And uh, good news, uh, like uh, Mayor, Mayor Shea is saying, that uh, looks like we're going to be having a doctor in April. And I was talking to Mayor Shea last week, and, and he confirmed that. Uh, still understanding. And, Mayor Shea and, and your counselors, if you're working hard, and I'm sure you are, to get a doctor to Focal Island, we thank you very much. The public thank you very much because it's been a disaster out there, Patty, uh, weeks with no doctor. And I tell you, uh, there's when people have actually left the island and people are talking about leaving the island and maybe this confirmation now that we'll have a doctor in April might change things. And he also said that we may have a second doctor coming down the road. So that's good news. Uh, and that's good news. And we, that's what we want to hear. Because I tell you, it, it, it's, it's very frightening. It's very frightening to be out there, you know, more than 60 kilometers away, which you've got no ferry, and nowhere ambulance can fly at that, at that uh, much, much wind and no doctor. And I tell you, people are scared of that, especially people, seniors, you know, like, like myself, of course. I, yeah. guess, I guess they're still waiting for official confirmation from the regional health authority, but the doctor here has told the patients that she is leaving, I believe it's a woman, that she is leaving and she is going to Fogo Island. But uh, Mayor Shea also mentioned yesterday he hasn't received official confirmation from the health authority, but I guess that's the formalities of it all. But good news for the folks on Fogo Island. And I kind of understand the other guy's point that, you know, it's good news for you, bad news for him. And that's the issue when we're just shuffling doctors around as opposed to adding more doctors to the family medicine fold. So, yeah, fair enough. I appreciate the time, okay. Eugene. Thanks a lot. Okay, so, okay, sorry, just one second. So what he's saying, okay, I, I understand. I, I, that's not the way I understand because I only got the later part of this conversation. So, yeah, uh, so, Patty, but we have had a rough time trying to get a doctor there, as you know, and you and I have talked about that, the doctor coming from the States and the doctor that's coming from uh, Callaway and the doctor's coming from wherever, and uh, and it's been it's been a battle, and uh, we don't know why it's been such a battle, but uh, that's, that's confusing itself. But uh, anyway, good news if there's a doctor coming in April, and maybe Eugene is staying, now. Huh? Appreciate the time, Eugene. Have a good day, brother. You too. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, I just want to make a comment on that lady who got evicted yesterday. Yeah, Shirley Cox, I think you're talking uh, about. Yeah. yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I met her several times. I'm, I'm a delivery person, and uh, when I used to go back and forth there, uh, every time she was there, they smiled. Every, just about everybody who I ever knew goes back and forth, stops and talks to her, and fine lady. And she don't smoke in the building. That's the part that gets me. So it's absolutely incredible they can evict someone without a reason. That just blows my mind. Now, the city, I don't know how many. I'm thinking they got 468 houses or something they got. So that means they can phone anybody today and give them a three-month notice to get out because we don't want to be there. 
I find the the story in part ridiculous. It's uh, angering, but not be even told the reason. I think it makes it just that much worse for me. If the, someone had to say to her, "Look, we had complaints from residents because the smoke from your cigarette is making its way into the building," then just tell her why she's being evicted. It's just something else that they're able to say. No, we don't have to give you reason when I think a reason is deserved and should be forthcoming. So, and if it is the smoking issue then it's incumbent on the city to make it easier for someone in a wheelchair to get to the smoking section. So it's a real problematic story. I feel terrible for Shirley. No, exactly. And and the wheelchair, it takes you down to the smoking shack. There's a path you can walk down. But she cannot get down there in her chair. The, the ramp is not fit because she will tip over. It's the same way when she first leaves the building. Someone got to be there with her even just to take her out to the parking lot because there is a slope there. Now, I do remember I was talking to a couple months ago there, and there was a guy down looking at the wheelchair. Went, and Buddy Howells up in the van, looks out the window and says, Dad, nah, so that's good enough. It's good enough for him. He's not in a wheelchair. He's caught in the van and jumping around all day. This lady is 82 years old. we got to take that consideration too, right? 82 years old. And if it is because she's out by the door smoking and got hub out in the middle of the winter, St. John City Hall should be ashamed of themselves. Something else could have been done. Go down and fix the ramp in front of us. Let her go out in the parking lot and smoke. Go over where the cars are at and smoke. And she certainly would have. She can't. She, she tried it before and she almost tipped over a couple of times. City Hall should have their head bowed today in shame. I am, wow. <laughs> sorry, Betty. <laughs> well, that's okay by me. I mean, an 82-year-old disabled woman, if it's simply about getting access to that smoking section, that's the easiest fix. I know there's associated costs and all the rest of it, but if that's the reason, and we've heard about this story in the past, so it should have been attended to, but not to tell the lady why she's being evicted and all the uncertainty that looms in her future. She might have to move to a care home out in Conception Bay South. She might have to have a roommate for the first time in a long time, so it's all bad as far as I can see and I appreciate you making time for the show and I'm glad yeah. I, I bet you surely appreciate your support go ahead last word goes to you Eddie and 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 not because there's only one person there doing it it's Wadi Harper there I worked in the building one time it was three different stories it was wheelchair accessible but the washrooms wasn't there was one person in that building they had to renovate three big huge washrooms and spend tens and tens of thousands of dollars on it down there is all they had to do was fix up the ramp to get her down to the shack. But no, no, they hover out because they want someone else probably to go there or something. But in the meantime, they can phone anybody today and give them a three-month notice and say, get out, we don't want you there. We're putting someone else there. See ya. Anyway, sorry, Patty. No problem. I appreciate the call. Hi, everybody. Take care. Yeah, I mean, uh, the story's bad enough, but no reason at all, even given. And there is a reason. Someone knows the reason. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, hydroponics, don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number seven. Conway, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Morning. Uh, a couple of little issues here to talk about. The first one would be uh, we have nobody in the union. I know Jason Spengo and now he's supposed to be covering his job, which is Secretary of Treasurer, and uh, I guess trying to fill in and do the job he was doing for us, which is a, is a job in its own, I guess. And we have our crab fisheries just around the corner and other fisheries. And we really, we got nobody to talk to. There's been no union meetings down on this coast about our issues. And uh, I was just kind of wondering how much longer the union is going to put it off. He said the 
thirteenth now. This is the second time they've been going to have somebody to represent us, and it's uh, you know we got issues that got to be brought to DFO over our crab quotas and what's going on with our hearing. What about the crab quotas in particular, can I? Well, we're looking for a little bump in our quota. I mean, when I started crab fishing with my father, we had 33,000. We're down to list them five now, and there's a good sign of crab again. And, you know, we, we're looking for a little increase, but we need our representative there to, to put it forward, I guess, you know. And we ain't got no representative down on this coast right now. And like I said, I know Jason is really busy trying to show, uh, handle two jobs, but we need someone to represent us. Okay, when's the last time you had a representative? For, or is Mr. Spingle your representative if you're just not getting the representation you want? Which is it? Well, he, he's still, I suppose, representing us. But like I said, the man's got two jobs now, so someone's got to lose out. So, I mean, it's, it's not Jason's fault. I wouldn't blame it on Jason this time, but, you know. But, uh, yeah, we need someone down here to represent us. Her, her issues. And that's our crab issue, but our other issue is in our hearing. Where, I guess I'll put the elephant in the room. The native, the Alibu van here, has been buying up licenses. And... Apparently, they're trying to say that they don't have to follow the same rules as us. I mean, I can understand if they got a ban quota, whatever they does with their ban quota. Because I read down through the, the Indian Act, and I can't see it anywhere in it where it says that they can buy competitive quotas to a cap that's like our hearing. We'll start off with 100,000 or 200,000, and then... Gordon's the boats is catching up the fish. They'll keep increasing the quota till or the cap till you know the fish is took. But what we got going on is we got a band that's got a couple of licenses bought in a fully competitive quota. It's not their band quota. It belongs to everybody. And they're leasing boats. And we're not allowed to lease boats. If you if you haven't paid in and bought into you know, buying the equipment to go at this tuck sailing, then you can't lease a boat. That was the rules and regulations that was put into it years ago. Now, if DFO got them weeped out or whatnot, you can't find out. But why wouldn't of, why wouldn't one band or another be able to buy licenses like anybody else? They can. A okay. Band can buy buy the license, but the problem is, is don't take a fully competitive quota that belongs to the Newfoundland people and turn it into your own IQT, your individual transferable quota, okay? Because this is what they're doing. If if you're, you got a boat, okay, and the band got four licenses, now I can, they can come and lease your boat, catch up the cap on this, this uh, license, transfer the license to the next license to your boat, catch up that cap. Transfer the next license to your boat and catch that cap. And then when it gets bumped up, they can go back with the first license that they started with and transfer that back on your boat and just keep going. And and what it is is, is an individual transferable quota is what they got it turned into. 
But it's nowhere in the Indian Act that says that they're allowed to take a, a, a quota that belongs to the people and buy into it and turn all their little bits and pieces into their own ITQs. They should have to follow the same rules as we do. What he does with the red fish that the government give to them, that's theirs. That's theirs. I mean, that's theirs. That's their, their banned quota. But when they're coming in on the people's quota and taking that as they see fit, and then DFO was saying, well, uh, you're going to have to uh, take it to the government. We don't need to take it to the government. The lady that's running that is supposed to, to know that that's not wrote into the Indian Act. And what she's doing is illegal. You're, you're putting one person over another. And I'm native, but I don't think anybody in Newfoundland, and as long as I can remember, has ever been treated any different if you was native or not. We've all had the same opportunity in life. And, you know, the natives that's here, my bloodline is here, we're from in Nova Scotia. I mean, this is where they come. The, the, the French brought us over here. Our, our bloodline, our ancestors brought us over here to help hunt down the Beatic. And that's the truth. That's what we all learned in school. I'm not sure what that has to do with the quotas, but okay. No, but this is what I'm saying. There's, there's, they're just, we're all people here. Everybody that's on this island migrated here. And now what they're doing is they're trying to say that you know, these people can take our quota and, and, and do what they want with it because they bought two or three licenses. I can't go buy two or three licenses. The companies is not allowed to buy two or three licenses and do the same thing. Fairness. Like I said, whatever the government gives them a quota to the ban, that stirs. But they should not be allowed to come in and do what they're doing in our herring fishery and it's leaving people like myself who depend on the herring. Now, all the herring is caught. So I got my crab caught and, and, and my lobster fishing done and a little bit of turbot. This year, the quota was took by a boat from the other side of the island that was leased by the, by the, the native band who shouldn't even be allowed to do it. It's not their quota. They got a license. They want to do, go fish it. Well, get a boat. And then for the other license, get another boat. The same thing as we got to do. It's not their quota. It's the people's quota. That's just all I'm trying to stress. Fair enough. Uh, anything else you want to say, Conway, before I take another call? No. Thank you for the time. Appreciate yours. Take care. Yep. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number one. Eliza, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm pretty good. I'm calling now. I just want to encourage the people on the Bonavista Peninsula to come out to a public meeting on Wednesday, uh, February the 15th at Discovery Collegiate. Uh, it's organized by a small group of uh, concerned citizens here, and we, need to, we can't even express it strongly enough um, how concerned we are and how concerned we ought to be and we need to band together and we need to hear some facts about what's what have happened and what's going on and what can happen that can have a positive effect 
on our hospital and its residents. And I encourage those people again uh, on the Bonavista Peninsula to please come out on uh, November the 15th, I'm sorry, um, February the 15th, 7 p.m. at Discovery Collegiate. And so this is all about the emergency room closure that uh, Craig Party, your member, spoke about earlier? Well, it's, it's about the emergency room and, and physicians and services in general. Like, I know that it's a complex situation, and we all know across the province and the country uh, the mess, the crises we are in in health care. But there's things that can be fixed that's left unattended to. And if you fix one area that can be fixed, it's going to help other places. And somehow we we got to get the point across to government that they got to start listening. And I know they're working behind the scenes. I know there's a, there's a lot of people working behind the scenes. But it, it really bothers me when things are at your doorstep and it takes months and months to look after something that can be looked after. That really bothers me. And it should bother the people. You know, and when you have as facts, like, I don't like talking hearsay and, and you're assuming things because lots of times we assume things. That's not the way it is at all. So, you know, we got to get we got to get to some facts and facts that's indisputable. You know, they can't be denied. They're there in front of you and they cannot change. But politicians and people in positions of power who can do things, there's that much internal confusion that it's got the rest of the province mind-boggled. I have never been so mind-boggled in my life because when I start talking about health care, if I don't focus, it's just like you can go all over the place and not know what you're talking about because, you know what, that's the kind of answers sometimes you get from politicians. They say a lot, and when you try to figure out what they said, they said nothing. Where do you think some of the confusion lies, Eliza? Expand on that for me. Well, well, you know what, Patty? I just called this morning just to talk about the public meeting. Okay. And hopefully, over the next few days and leading up uh, to uh, February the fifteenth, I will say a few things. But I haven't got the fact. I haven't got everything before me, and I don't want to talk about too much at one time because. Nope. It is mind-boggling. And most people, like, wherever you're talking to people, anywhere in the provinces, like, we're all shaking our heads. How did it get to be? How did we get to where we are? But you know something? It was a long time coming. And every government, PC, liberal, they all had their opportunity to make a difference, but they didn't. They let it get to a crisis. And that's exactly what they did. And most of the times, that's what we all do. We wait for something to, we, we see it coming, but if it's not talked about and impressed upon people, it's left. And then when it's left, nobody knows where to turn. But you know something? The people on the Bonavista Peninsula, we know where to turn, and we do have solutions, and somebody's going to have to listen to us. One thing for absolute sure that you said is this has been a long time in the making. Long time coming. There's no doubt about it. Uh, so one more time at the Discovery Center coming up on the 15th of this month at 7 p.m., right, Eliza? Yes, Discovery Collegiate. Discovery Collegiate, Collegiate pardon me. And, uh, and I'm going to keep calling in, and uh, Reg Zertle, he will, he will keep calling in and probably will give bits and pieces of things that, uh, that may sound confusing, but we've got to try to simplify things. Absolutely. You're welcome to give it another pump before the meeting happens, Eliza. Appreciate your time this morning. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Uh, you All too. Right. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away.
Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Oh, welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, Bob, you're on the air. Hello. How you doing, Paddy? Doing okay, Bob. How about you? Good. I, I, I'm not sure now, but I heard that gas is supposed to spike tonight. Now up to, up over 50 cents a litre. I don't know if that's any true or not, but I heard it on the wind there this morning. Did you guys hear anything about that? Yeah, well, a couple of people, as a matter of fact, did send me uh, pictures that they saw on Facebook where people are saying 55 cents spike tonight. Now, of course, the official news or numbers aren't out yet, coming from the PUB, and even when they are, they're embargoed to like 12 p.m. Uh, or 12 a.m. So, I, short answer, I don't know, but I don't think so. Some of the people that I know in that realm, they I, I sent a couple of messages around this morning, and nobody's heard anything, anything of the like. And these are people who are generally in the know as distributors and or retailers. Okay, well, that's good. Well, I got my ears on. I don't, miss a sh- I don't miss a show ever, but I want to give a shout-out to Bruno. He's a good addition when he phones in. I like sharing a man. Well, then, Bob, uh, you are in luck. He's in line, is he? He's next. <laughs> <laughs> God love him. <laughs> One thing I want to add, there, sure. that old that, that old Mrs. Now getting evicted. Yeah. Uh, there's two sides of every story and everything. But you know what? I'd like to hear the person, the come on open line, who said, "Yep, we got to evict her." I want to see that person come online and justify how you can ask an 82 year old senior to move out, and what is the reasoning and the justification for it. I want to see that person come on, and I want to see. I want to hear the was and the hows. How can someone make that decision? That is God awful. I agree with you, and I don't know if there's one person that has all the authority to make the decision. And you said that they asked her to uh, move out; they kicked her out, they evicted her. So, and no reason why. Then there's all kinds of confusion about. We're told that there was an agreement on an eviction date between the city, the community partners, and Shirley Cox herself, when in fact Shirley Cox says that's not true. So there's lots of unknowns still in this story. And and who would be they, Patty? What do you mean? Sorry? They evicted her, you said they... Well, the city. You know, whoever. The city manages Riverhead Tower, so ultimately it'd be up to the city regarding housing and who's in the housing, whether or not someone is evicted. So, yeah, they, in this case, would be the city. I wonder, does the city now have a representative to talk on this case, or are they they're going to do what city does and sit back and let things blow up and then try to fix it afterwards? The councillor that's been in the news on this subject is Ophelia Ravencroft. She's the council lead on housing. Uh, so she's been, uh, mis- oh, pardon me, Councillor Ravencroft has been speaking about the issue and the councillor is more than welcome on this program to help clear up some of the confusion. I'd like to know exactly why this is being done and some of the confusion about agreements on eviction dates and what have you because Shirley Cox, the woman in question, she knows nothing about it. It's shocking, ain't it? It's absolutely yeah, it's shocking. Something stinks. I do. Something's not right. I mean, to put an eviction on 82-year-old, I... Uh Something's not right there. It's very suspect, and we're happy to speak with uh, Councillor Ravencroft on it or anybody else who wants to, from the mayor on down. I appreciate the call, Bob, and I don't think there's any accuracy to the possibility of a 55-cent hike in gas. At least I hope not, but my so-called sources, they don't back it up. Okay, Patty. Well, I hope not because we, we're in some god-awful state of affairs for us society. I guarantee that. Well, I'll be hitchhiking to work tomorrow if it's 55 cents, I can tell you that much. You know, the people not going to work is what's going to happen. Could be. Yeah, it'd be devastating. That, you know, uh, when we saw the 35 cent hike in diesel there one day last week, that was enough to knock you off your chair. So 55 cents on gas would be mind, bi- mind bending and 
entirely unacceptable and not justified. So we'll see where it goes, Bob, but I don't think we're going to see that number. All right, 10-4, buddy. I'll let you go on now and hear the other fellow. We get, we get to see what he got to say there this morning. Huh? Here he comes. All right. Okay, thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. And uh, one of Bob's favorite callers in the queue, all the way from Cape Breton, Mr. Mark Cocchio. Bruno, you're on the air. <laughs> Good morning, Mr. Daly. Good morning to you. First of all, a, a brief comment on the gentleman that called about the fi- concerned about the herring fishery. Uh, what he's suggesting is to increase the size of the quota to accommodate the needs of the First Nations rather than buying existing licenses and transferring them. Uh, that's exactly what happened in Nova Scotia and in New Brunswick in the herring, I mean, in the lobster fishery where the federal government bought the licenses and then handed them over to the First Nations. It's resulted in a lot of conflict that's been facilitated by DFOs, I want to say uh, incompetence, but uh, it's more directed at incompetence. And in enforcing... uh, uh, the new regulations, uh, and it's li- led to a near civil war here, uh, and that's what's going to happen there unless people can realize that this is just racism at its core, and that uh, it's got to be resolved by sensible people, thoughtful people, uh, making sure that uh, the quota can be transferred and it can be successfully implemented at the wishes of the First Nations. Well, I mean, what we did see in your neck of the woods is lots of vandalism, acts of violence, and that cannot be the outcome. Never should be in the first place, but we certainly can't see that here, and hopefully not anyway. Okay, so that's that one, Bruno. I know you want to talk about hydroponics, so let's get into that. Well, I was quite uh, impressed. I think it was Mackenzie Werfer talking about the 20-foot by 100-foot Uh, greenhouses. Um, That's exactly what is needed in Newfoundland and Labrador because of the problems with importation. And uh, I'd like to find out more about uh, technical details on on these 20 by 100 foot greenhouses. Are they double skinned uh, to uh, keep heat in much better? Um, he also said something that I found fascinating, that they were heated geothermally. Uh, what what exactly does that mean? Do you have sources of geothermal energy, if so? We do. There's a couple of places that actually utilize geothermal uh, heating. There's a couple of places in the battery. For instance, the Geo Center has germal, uh, geothermal heating. Uh, accommodated in that facility. So where it's available, that sounds like an excellent way to heat a greenhouse, and certainly on the proverbial cheap as well. Absolutely. And it's the kind of thing that uh, needs uh, to be fully implemented to make sure that uh, the needs of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are met. I know that there was a disaster with the cucumber greenhouse, but first of all, it was built on a toxic uh, site, uh, which didn't stand well for it. And then it only grew one crop. And once you can grow more than you can consume, 
there, that means you've got to deal with shipping again and the costs of that and the distribution system and all of the rest of it. Where if you're growing food for your domestic consumption, you can grow a lot of uh, relatively cool weather crop, all the brassicas, all the cabbages and broccolis and all of those things that uh, prefer a cool environment quite nicely. And uh, you can probably grow most everything if you've got access to heat source that doesn't cost an arm and a leg like geothermal that's free. So uh, if something like that is encouraged and done by farmers in Newfoundland, and not to re- not as a legacy project for some twisted politician, which has doomed these projects in the past. Let's not bring anything up. Muskrat Falls. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, we've had our fair shake of uh, to and fro on muskrat. The hydroponic issue. I mean, we've had uh, a couple of different. Uh, organic or pardon me hydroponic farmers on this show there's another outfit that i've uh, connected with for them to come on as well because i think you know it's a sort of misunderstood technique we're all very familiar with the traditional methods of farming but hydroponics can absolutely be part of our solutions here because it could be done just about anywhere. Uh, you can grow year-round. You can find a local market. We know we've got food insecurity issues and access or proximity to uh, buy food in this province. So the hydroponics, you know, it also has a direct impact with not only input costs for the farmers, but for emissions as well. Meaning they use less water. In fact, they just use a water-soluble fertilizer. So there's a lot of upside to it. Beyond just food, there's a lot of other positive implications with more and more hydroponics. So I'm personally very keen on it and very interested in it. So we're going to keep trying to have people on who know more about it than I do because I know very little. I'm learning as we go. But, yeah, those guests are most welcome here because food, you know, we talk about all these crises, whether it be opioid crisis and healthcare crisis. The numbers of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and Canadians in general that don't have access to affordable, healthy food and relying on food banks is an absolute distinct failure in governance. So food banks used to be just a backstop. It was a one-time type thing. Now it's a big part. It's a linchpin in the community for people to be able to eat. Access to food is a crisis. It absolutely is a crisis, and we've got to deal with it appropriately. Every other crisis, we mobilize. You know, we have all these comprehensive suite of uh, uh, lures and enticements for healthcare workers. And if there's a natural disaster, we all mobilize, and rightfully so, on all these fronts. But we don't do the same with food, and it absolutely is a crisis. Yeah, it absolutely is a crisis. I agree with you, and do encourage the full utilization. I can't believe that... uh, the hydropon- that uh, geothermal heat isn't uh, fully uh, implemented before. Uh, there are places like California that I've visited where they've used geothermal so much that they're running out of it. It's uh, the, pr- the pressure is dropping. But uh, certainly all of the available uh, geothermal energy should be implemented and grown. Uh, growing crops for your domestic consumption. It's a fabulous idea that needs to be championed. So go for it. I wanted to finish by talking about Charlie, who called last week. Yeah, very quickly. Go ahead. And suggested that, uh, first of all, he was impressed by Imperial Oil having predicted accurately on climate change. And I want to tell Charlie 
that it's not a mystery, that it's just physics. If you increase the temperature, you just have to monitor the increase in the carrying moisture carrying capacity of the system. And some simple tests and extrapolation would have done that even 30 years ago. And the re- relatively crude science uh, or, or climate change models of the day would have already suggested these changes, dramatic changes in rainfall uh, patterns and uh, arid patterns that would lead to floods and droughts in some areas. So it's no miracle, Charlie, of, of what what's happened. And the other thing is, yeah. it's not too late to act. Climate change isn't just a switch, like you suggested, that I've missed it because the switch has flipped and that's it. Well, I suggested I, what? Not you. Charlie suggested oh. that climate change was just a switch that flipped, and we've missed the flip, so I might as well get used to it. Now, if that were true, uh, I would be entertaining myself uh, with uh, as much debauchery as uh, I engaged in my cha- in my wasted youth when I lived at Rochdale College. But no, okay. indeed not. It's not too late to act, and and, and we have to act uh, because otherwise, uh, I don't know if you're. Uh, familiar with uh, uh, the movie um, how I got uh, got used to uh, uh, getting used to no I'm uh, not uh, um, but I, I am I, desperately late for the break Bruno but I appreciate your time and listen stay tuned because we're going to try to explore the world of hydroponics more and more because I think it's such an excellent idea and the time is right. We understand the technology or people actually understand the technology and show whether it be you know, seed money from governments or having a better understanding of the role it can play. I'm happy to chase it because I think it's a great idea. I'm off to the break, Bruno. Appreciate your time. Take All good right, care. Get, get the technical details because I'm interested. I'll try. Is it double-skinned? How is the heat going to be Understood. In the greenhouses. Yes, Bruno. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, thanks. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. The topic is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to uh, the program. So uh, on the world of hydroponics, and we're, we're going to hold off the callers until after the news because I was really late for the 10 o'clock news, and I don't want to miss the 11 o'clock news as close as I can be. So the issue regarding hydroponics, and Bruno's interested in the technical details, and fair enough, because the more we understand about how it works and the benefits of, then maybe we'll see more and more people bring forward a business model to bring a hydroponic opportunity to where they live, whatever community we're talking about, anywhere in the province. So if you are involved in hydroponics, please do indeed consider giving us a call. And you're not going to be peppered with all sorts of technical information that might be a little bit over my head and over many listeners' heads, but things that we should know about it. Because I do think there's a massive opportunity associated with the hydroponic farming in the province and our good friend organic farmer Mark Wilson. He just sent along uh, a link to me called Common Ground Community Development Corporation. And they're talking about uh, other opportunities inside year-round greenhouses and gardens. And this one, in this case, uh, Mount Sile, uh, Mount Sile Place in Pippi Park. So maybe, just maybe, Dave, let's see if we can get Common Ground interested in coming on the program to talk about what they've got in the offing. It's not fully operational yet, 
but the concept sounds extremely exciting. So they say, here's the word off the top. Common Ground is a St. John's-based, incorporated, not-for-profit organization dedicated to promoting, supporting, and implementing sustainable community development initiatives in St. John's and surrounding areas to focus on local food, green technology, and ecological restoration. So let's see if we get Common Ground interested in coming on the show to talk about the, pro- the uh, project that they've got in the works. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOSM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlinefiosim.com. My favorite is when you give us a call, and you can do exactly that during this news break. We're taking a break for said news, and then we're coming back. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, taking one to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Humber Bay of Islands. That's Eddie Joyce. Good morning, Eddie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm good, sir. Can't complain. Patty, I'm calling again on the cataract surgeries because it's getting up to close to April 1st again. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I just did the good news is, is that the people who are on the wait list for over a year now will be start uh, having the surgery done come April 1st. The bad news is that I'm getting calls from seniors uh, already who have to wait until April 1st, 2024 to get their surgery done due to the quota system that the government ha- has, has put in place. Right. Let's go back to the beginning so people know what we're talking about. So explain what the quota system looks like and how it works in your area. Well, what is there's a certain number of um, uh, of people who can be done per year that the government has put in place at the at the APAC center that can be done a year uh, at the West Memorial. There's only one day available to do this type of surgery, and the doctor that goes in and does that does glaucoma, and that's for provincial wide. He does all patients in the province glaucoma, and and what is the APAC center can do these surgeries. They can work on to get rid of the backlog, but the government has put in a quota so so there's only a certain number that you can do uh, per year in western Newfoundland at the APAC center um, Stephenville uh, the system is, is not up and running I explained that before they can do it but the, the equipment is outdated uh, you need the actual fact you need equipment from APEX to go do surgeries out in the public facility in Stephenville uh, in in Cornerbrook in western Newfoundland there's only one day and the doctor used that for, for glaucoma uh, so, so that is the problem uh, is that there's a quota on ice it, it's sad people's uh, 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 people's lost their 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 independence uh, people can't read you need extra care all because this government put in a quota a quota on ice now hips and knees and, and petty I'll, I'll just get I'll just give you some stats in Nova Scotia and I did a lot of research on this there's a new clinic open up they're giving them 6,000 do as many as you like patients in New Brunswick open up a new clinic do as many as you like. And we want you to do a glaucoma in there so that we can free up the operational time that we need in hospitals to do other surgeries. And other problems in Saskatchewan, Ontario, move in. Do what you like. We need this done so that we can free up for, for the backlog of surgeries. Apex, in, in, through Justin French, started this whole procedures of doing this and, and getting, rid of, getting rid of the wait list in Newfoundland and Labrador they're the only ones who got a quota put on them. Across Canada, they're saying, come on in, do as many as you can. more you can do, the more our operation rooms are, are going to be open. So so why isn't it being done? I don't know. I just think there's a, there was a personality conflict going on there, and the patients are the ones suffering. 
Uh, Petty, I, I received a, a letter back from Tom Osborne confirming um, I wrote him about the other thing. One thing Tom Osborne did not have in his letter, and I asked, was the latest um, uh, negotiations that were done to give three hundred, give 3000 to St. John's, 300 to Western, was it done to Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association? He refused to answer it because I am very confident that it wasn't done. And Petty, you had you. I think you had the minister on, or you had information sent to you. I just want to read part of this letter. Okay. Minister Osborne was saying there's 97 percent being done in Western Newfoundland, and that is within 112 days in, in the Canadian benchmark. In this letter, these additional procedures have been used to prioritize the longest waiting list patients. So he's admitting now that that the um, um, that there's a wait list. Non-hospital designated facilities are required to work with the regional authorities to develop a process to identify long waiters. He's admitting there's long waiters in Newfoundland and Labrador. He's in Western Newfoundland. He's admitting it now and scheduled in for surgery as soon as possible. The other thing that that the minister didn't recognize, but he is in this letter because when I wrote him, I made it sure, he is admitting now there is a centralized intake system and the the intake system has recognized has recognized that the that there is a wait list and it says they have to see the next available provider so everything that i've been saying that there is a wait list there is an intake officer with over 800 names on 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 that list Everything that I've been saying, the minister has now put in writing that is true. But we still got people, seniors and mainly seniors, in Western Newfoundland, as we speak today, cannot get their eyes done until April first, twenty twenty-four, because a quota system from this from this government. And you look at if you look at the press release that was sent out January twenty-fifth with the traveling orthopedic program. I agree with that. I agree with that. I don't even know why there's a quota system. I mean, we talk about trying to clear up uh, backlogs, whether it be traveling orthopedic teams, flying people in and out for cath services. So is there any understanding as to why we don't just do as many as possible to clear up that backlog as quick as possible? What the minister is saying and what the government has been saying is that, okay, we need our, our health care facilities. There's no and, and the other thing that the minister forgot to mention, and, and, and this is very important, in in when he gave the three thousand to the two private clinics in St. John's, and I have no problem with that cleaning up the backlog. I have no problem with that. But what he forgets to mention, there's already four ophthalmologists working over and above those two private clinics in St. John's. In the healthcare public health, they have OR time. In Western Newfoundland, there's not one person, ophthalmologist, working full-time at the West Memorial or Sir Tomic Reddick Hospital. These, these are the details that they, they forget to mention, and they put a wait list on, on eyes. On hips, there's none. On knees, there's none. On shoulder, there's none. There's no quota, but there's certainly extensive wait times. And then wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be beneficial if you gave hospital and Cormac another day, that day, day and a half that you do glaucoma across the province? If you can say, okay, let's move that out for a while, and let's give people in Western Newfoundland, the doctors, the opportunity to finish up that wait list. And, and, and I look in, in the... In the press release sent out uh, January 25th uh, for Health and Community Services, and and I just read it verbatim. 
There continues to be a significant demand for hip and knee replacement surgery in the province, which has resulted in longer wait times. Reducing wait lists is a priority for all health care stakeholders, except for cataract surgeries on Western Newfoundland. And I'll read the, the quote from the Premier. Here's the Premier's quotes, and this is January 25, 2023. Reducing wait lists is a priority for all of our health care stakeholders. That's the Premier's own words. So I'm, I'm asking again, I'm asking again, why is there a quota on, on the wait list for cataract surgeries? At the the money's there. The money's the minister's already saying that if you go to a regional facility, we'll pay for it. If you do it up here, we're just saying, no, we're going to let you do so many when there's no OR time available. Like, like it's beyond me. So when I get calls, when I get calls now for people, who who says I gotta wait till next year to get my eyes on? It's wrong. It's absolutely all across Canada. All across Canada, this this building here has set up a a blueprint of how to get rid of wait lists for cataract surgeries, and the only ones. And you check with New Brunswick, check with Nova Scotia, check with Saskatchewan, check with Ontario, check with Quebec. All the stats are there. The only ones that's been denied to get rid of the wait list is Western Newfoundland, where all this started. Quite bizarre. Very quickly before I have to go, Eddie, do you know, have you been told how many procedures one doctor could do per day? Uh, at the um, at the uh, there's a different. There's about 28, I think 25 to 28 per day they can do per day. And there's three. There's three at at that center. So yep. if, you're, if you're talking three, you're talking about 75 a day they could do. So in three months, four months, waitlist is gone. Four months, say tops five months, three to four months, the people who are supposed to wait till April 1st, 2024. We'll be done. Yeah, the current backlog, the current caseload, which, of course, people will be added to it every day, unfortunately. I uh, appreciate the update this morning. Eddie, last word. Go ahead. Petty, again, thank you for the opportunity. Look, uh, uh, I tried everything. Working with the government, uh, I tried to, I'm almost begging the Premier to get this done. I'm begging Tom Osborne, not for me, for the seniors. Thank they you, Eddie. Need it, they need it done, and there's no reason why we can't get it done. Give them back their quality of life, for God's sake. We're a democracy. We're Canada. We're Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Let's get it done. Thanks, Eddie. Thank you, Petty, again for the opportunity. Take care. Thank you. Goodbye, Eddie Joyce. Independent member for Humber Bay Violence. All right, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, as we're all aware, Canada's greatest maritime disaster since World War II happened on February the 15th, 1982, when the Ocean Ranger capsized, all 84 crewmen died, including 56 men from this province. Mike Heffernan's an author. He wrote Rig, an oral history of the Ocean Ranger disaster. It's now been translated into a play that's going to be produced uh, at the LSPU Hall. So Mike Heffernan, right after this, don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the author of Rig, an oral history of the Ocean Ranger disaster. And that's Mike Heffernan. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Doing okay. How about you? I'm uh, doing great. Terrific. Well, I know that uh, Joan Sullivan is uh, taking on this task along with uh, Nicole Russo and others. But let's just go back. I can't remember exactly when the book was released. I'm going to guess 2008, nine or ten, somewhere in that neighborhood. Which one was oh, it, Mike? Nine, yeah. 2009. Oh, nine. I read it, but take us back to putting it together. For the first time, we saw some photographs that were unpublished and the first-hand accounts. It must have been harrowing to even put this together because, of course, the tragic tale of the Ocean Ranger is something that stings the province to this very day. 
Yeah, well, I guess I'll start at the beginning why I wrote the book. So my father's um, first cousins worked in the oil and gas industry, and two of them worked on the ocean range around opposite ships. And their sister worked for the head of mobile oil at the time, Merv Graham. And so the, the disaster and oil and gas were part of my broader family history. So it was something, the ocean ranger disaster was something I grew up with. And the book itself, um, I think back to that time, and man, I just was full of piss and vinegar, you know. I, I was 27, 28 years old. It seems like a lifetime ago. But I wanted to document first uh, my second cousin Ron's story and his family's story, but also um, the broader uh, historical context within Newfoundland through the words and the images of people most greatly affected by that. So it's generally called uh, bottom down or bottom up kind of qualitative history, oral history, ethnography. Um, and yeah, so I, I went around the St. John's area generally, and I was very surprised that people were so open and kind uh, about their memories and what they had lost. And um, I wanted to document their stories as opposed to the official government narrative that came out in Hickman's uh, commission. Give us some examples. Sure. Um, well, I'll just tell you about Ron and Ray. So Ron Heffernan died on the Ocean Ranger, and his brother Ray um, worked on the opposite shift. So the week before the rig sank, there was a severe list, and they were about to evacuate. And Ray came back and told his friends and his brother, man, you know, it was a, a clear, clear sky, no waves, and we almost lost the rig. And so he said, if anything serious happens out there, we're goners. And of course, the next week, the rig sank and his brother was lost. But we lost a neighborhood kid born. that we used to see around all the time too, Gonzaga boy. And of course, Gonzaga commemorates that day to this date. Uh, Craig Tilly was a friend of ours, much older than we were, but he was a neighborhood guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they still commemorate the anniversary every year, 15th, because four uh, former students of Gonzaga um, including one of, at the time, one of the teacher's uh, brothers uh, were victims of the Ocean Ranger disaster. So they've been, they had a, a ceremony that would commemorate people from the community that they'd lost every year. And that kind of evolved into the Ocean Ranger service that's held every year and continues to be mm -hmm. uh, an important part of commemoration. Where did you procure or find the photographs? Mo the vast majority of them came from private collections. So a lot of the guys who were on the rig um, took photographs of their co-workers. And, you know, them at work just doing their going about their normal daily routines. Uh, some of them were family photos. Yeah, but they generally came from uh, a few were uh, sourced from the archives, but the vast majority of them came from private archives. Let's talk a little bit about the show that's going to be at the LSPU Hall. Sure. Talk about the process of working with Joan Sullivan and Nicole Russo, because the book and the story seems tailor-made for the stage, you know, for all the various soliloquies that we could see offered and the stories to be told, because we all know the story, but to hear it or to see it in that venue, I think, will be really interesting. So how do you think the translation worked? And talk about the process work with Joan and Nicole. Well, Joan, I have to say, is my mentor. Um, if it wasn't for her, I don't know if a rig would actually exist because I interviewed uh, one gentleman very early on, and I didn't even know if I could complete 
a book of this nature because it's a very sensitive topic. Um, I didn't know if people wanted to speak with me. Sure, I have some connection, but that's in a broader sense. Um, but the pro- Joan, uh, of course, is the managing editor of the Newfoundland Quarterly, and I submitted mm-hmm. a, an early chapter to her, and she just so happened to be a, a fan of verbatim theater and verbatim literature, and she was really instrumental, um, and she was so enthusiastic about me, you know, helping guide through the entire process because I was a newbie at this point, particularly with that type of writing. Um, but this is the fourth time now over the last 15 years that the project has been brought to the stage, first with Rising Tide, then Arts and Culture Center, um, the Romes put it off. But for me personally, you know, my generation, our generation, uh, really have an affinity for the Arts and Culture Center, or sorry, the Ellis Pugh Hall. I mean, I grew up around the All Ages music scene, but also, you know, I think of uh, the legacy that it has with, you know, Cod Co and, and the Mummers Troupe and uh, all those wonderful projects that have come out of the hall. I mean, it really has um, um, a historical legacy. So working with uh, Nicole and Joan, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an honor to, uh, to, to continue, I think, the the legacy of the Ocean Ranger disaster and, and what that means and to present people who probably didn't see it before another opportunity. Um, as a writer, I mean, it's a, it's a real blessing and gift that this project has a life that continues on every year or at least um, every so many years, Joan or someone decides, let's, let's relaunch this. It's still an important topic. So it's, it begins, uh, opening night is February the 9th. Uh, 9th and the 10th is at 8 p.m. On the 11th, there's actually going to be a live stream of the performance at 8 p.m. On the 12th, the, what they're calling, uh, it's a 2 p.m. matinee. It's a relaxed performance. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> to be quite honest, I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure. Okay. Um, uh, but... Uh, you know, that's that's something I should look into. But I'll, I'll give you some dates here now, and I'll tell you about the cast. So Rig features Aiden Flynn, uh, Deidre Gillard, Rawlings, uh, Daryl Hopkins, Steve Lush, Wendy Smallwood, and Marquita Walsh. So some of those, some of the cast members have been in previous productions, and it runs from the hall from February 9th to 14th. So the final uh, show is on February 14th. Of course, the rig sank on the 15th. Um, and if you're looking for tickets, you can go to tickets.lspuhall.ca. And you can always give them a call. The box office is open. You can get it in, per, uh, yeah. in person, I think, Monday to Friday in the afternoon, maybe 12 to 5. Yeah. And the phone number, which I know, is 753-4531 <laughs> at extension 200. I don't know why I remember those numbers, but I do. <laughs> anyway, I think it's great that it's making its way back to the stage uh, and to I you. Too. I couldn't be happier. Yeah, I'm sure. So to you and Joan and Nicole and all the performers, which uh, that's a pretty heady group of actors and performers that you've got uh, tapped here for this one. Uh, break a leg. Thanks very much, man. I uh, hope to see you there. <laughs> I'd love to get there. Okay. Thanks, man. Thanks, Bye-bye. Mike. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, extremely difficult subject but a story that will indeed be retold for all the obvious reasons in this province uh david what am i going to do here i only got a couple minutes to the news is timothy able to hold for after the news can you make sure because really want to speak with timothy timothy collier he's co-founder cooperator of greenhead growers so we're going to talk a bit more about food and food security and food production but quickly before we get to the news let's go to four leonard you're on the air good morning patty morning 
just wonder, has this question been posed to you about uh, consumers uh, trying to get the uh, numbers for fuel prices earlier than uh, uh, we we're getting them? Like, say, for instance, I don't want to hear them until probably uh, 5.30 on the uh, NTV uh, news. Uh, is there any way that we can avail of those numbers before? I'll give you an example of the reason why is because Say, for instance, I have a wife and daughter that commutes from town uh, around supper time. Uh, you know, I mean, it would be nice for uh, if I can let them know if it's going down or anybody, for that matter, in the traveling public, right? Is there that question been posed to you? It has. The short answer is the PUB sends out a news release to the media outlets and communicates the changes with the distributors and the retailers, but it's embargoed information until 12 midnight. So we're not allowed, or we'll just end up probably getting cut off from the PUB, because it was a while ago that the embargo was only till 8 p.m., so people had a chance to find out the night before and go to the gas station or get their diesel or whatever the case may be, but they made it 12, because there was one instance, I'm going to say six months ago, where there was a big spike coming. The news media outlets found out, and as opposed to telling people, they actually went to some retailers to go kind of skirt the issue, and the retailers told us before the embargo was up, then they moved it to midnight. So we'll know sometime today, but no one's supposed to tell anybody until after midnight. So the short answer is we can only do what we can with the information before we end up getting cut off from yeah. the PUB. So, I mean, I get some rumors. It started with 55 cents this morning. Then I know people who are actually involved that, you know, have maybe leaked some numbers to me every now and then. And I'm, I tell you what, when there are big spikes anticipated and I'm told about it, I really, really, really want to tell people before they end up getting pummeled the next day. But, of course, then I'm jeopardizing the newsroom. And that's not in my best interest, nor theirs, nor the company's. But, yeah, it would be nice to know the numbers well in advance so I could take advantage or wait. Because if there's a big drop coming, I'd want to wait as well. So I wish we could do better with those numbers. But the PUB, I mean, it used to be a very rare occurrence where they used the interruption formula. Now it seems to happen far more frequently than ever before. It's become mind-boggling even trying to keep up with it. Yeah, that's no good to the consumer for, no box, uh, you know I mean, to report those numbers. That's a waste, uh, waste of time, basically, because... Uh, most people are home, of course, and uh, then Thursday comes, then they wake up and say, oh, Jesus, a major incre increase, yep. and uh, there's nothing you can do about it, so it's useless to be uh, reporting these numbers Wednesdays after supper. It's nuisance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I agree. Yep. Leonard, I appreciate it. I wish we had uh, some information to share with the fuel-consuming public so they could either take advantage of a break coming tomorrow or to avoid a spike by filling up tonight. Anyway. Now, it, one, one scenario, where I live at in CBS, yep. okay, there's probably a seven-cent uh, uh, more expensive out here on the shore than, say, if you go to uh, Costco, okay? Yep. But just say if there's a three or four-cent in increase, uh, uh, we find out about it, like I said, after supper, uh it doesn't. Uh, it's not feasible for us to drive into uh, Costco because we're not going to be saving on three or four cents. The only reason we'll save if there's a twenty-five or thirty-cent increase, and God will help us if that ever happens, because people should have to park their uh, vehicles in protest. And then once people start protesting and boycotting, maybe things will change. And that's what's got to happen here on this island. People got to go out and start boycotting. Yeah, that's been tried a few times, but of course, the oil companies and the refineries, they are big, bold businesses that can wait us out because eventually we're going to need to get some more gas. So that's been tried. It sounds like a great idea. I don't know how much impact it's had in the past, but I'm like everyone else, you know, 
deathly worried about these surges in prices for furnace oil and or for gasoline and food and everything else because it's the pressure is very, very real. Leonard, I appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Okay, buddy. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We are going to take a break for the news. And Timothy Collier, as I mentioned, is the co-founder, co-operator of Greenhead Growers. We'll find out what's going on at the Greenhead Growing Operation. And then number one, uh, Trevor wants to talk about the Arctic Winter Games. Hopefully he knows more about it than I do. I did see a news story a couple of days ago. I believe the games open on the 29th of January. They run till the 4th or the 5th. So we'll hear from Trevor about the Arctic Winter Games, which are actually taking in place in Wood Buffalo, Fort McMurray. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line three. Say good morning to the co-founder, co-operator at Greenhead Growers. That's Timothy Collier. Timothy, you're on the air. Hello, Mr. Daly. How are you doing? Great today. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. It's a, it's a beautiful day on the West Coast, roughly. Yeah, you're out in Stephenville, right? Uh, it was a bit further than that. Uh, we're in the Port of Port Peninsula, the uh, community's called Mainland. Oh, okay. Where we saw the protests uh, regarding the water quality not long ago. Okay, yeah, so right off the bat, did Greenhead Growers come from Youth Ventures? Uh, we were in, in partnership with them. Uh, my co-founder and, and nephew as well, Dawson Green, had a, uh, had a good relationship with them as well because he is, uh, he is a bit younger than myself, so, uh, so he qualified, and they gave, uh, they gave some good help with us for us. Terrific. So what goes on at Greenhead Growers? What are you doing? So we are a relatively small uh, hydroponic operation, uh, large for Newfoundland, small for, uh, <laughs> small for Canada, I suppose. But we basically grow uh, hydroponic lettuce exclusively right now. Uh, we are growing about 1,000 per week at our peak. Uh, down in the winter right now, we're down to about five or 600. Uh, but we have big, a big expansion plan for next year. So we'll be looking at quadrupling to quintupling our production next year because the market has been very voracious in wanting our product. So. And I saw there was a Canadian Hydroponic Growers Association just started, so hopefully that's a helpful umbrella organization. Explain the technology a little bit further. I know a bit about it. It used to be hydroponics was directly associated with growing marijuana, but of course the applications are wide and broad and varied. So walk us through, you know, how you get started, what people need to understand about the technology. Yeah, so the technology is fairly uh, fairly different since, uh, you know, since the sprung greenhouse thing in the 80s. Uh, but for growing lettuce and small leafy greens, short stature crops, anyhow, we use uh, what we call an NFT system, which is a nutrient film technique. Now, there are different techniques as well, uh, such as vertical and uh, deep water culture. But the one we use is nutrient film technique. This is where we have, uh, we have many, many gutters, only about four to six inches wide. And in these gutters, we have a, a very shallow film of uh, nutrient uh, nutrient solution, which flows over the, the roots of the, uh, of the lettuce, and then the lettuce can uptake the nutrient uh, freely from the, from the water, and uh, this uh, allows them to grow much faster than they would otherwise in soil, just because they don't have to expend that energy to send down a tap root or to uh, go through the soil. They can just uh, they can just uptake freely from the from the film of, of nutrient. How do you heat the greenhouse? Right now we're heating it with wood. Uh, on a day like today where there's a little bit of sun starting to break through, uh, it'll go up to 20 degrees all by itself. Uh, otherwise, we use an outdoor wood boiler and cordwood. And how do you, I guess, insulate the greenhouse? You know, caller earlier, Bruno, talked about double layering, or I can't remember the exact terminology he was using. So how do you ensure you capture as much heat and keep it in the greenhouse as possible? 
Yeah, there are a few there are a few techniques. The main one for insulation, which I hadn't known previous to starting this whole venture, was uh, double inflation. So, if you use uh, poly uh, poly uh, polyethylene film, like the the one that we're all familiar with, like a vapor barrier, mm-hmm. what you would do is you would install two layers, and then between these two layers, you would use a blower fan to inflate it to a very low very low pressure. Uh, to about six inches in between layers, and this actually gives you an R value of about five, which is far more than the single layer. Now, when you get into more advanced uh, advanced technology, such as double pane glass, triple pane pane glass, or polycarbonate twin wall, or or more, then those can hi- offer even higher uh, R values. But of course, the price tag goes along with it as well. Give us an idea what startup costs for an operation your size, and what size are we talking about? What scale? We, right now, we have a 3,000-square-foot greenhouse. So like I said, it's fairly small uh, in general. Um, something that size, and it is a very capital-intensive uh, capital business, unfortunately, although it does offer some distinct advantages. You'd be looking anywhere from 100 to 150000 if you wanted to buy the system all yourself, and more if you wanted to purchase a commercial greenhouse. Now, we built ours out of wood, which was quite the endeavor, but uh, working within the constraints of our budget, we didn't have much of a choice. Uh, system we have is a commercially uh, commercial commercial uh, commercially available one from the U.S. and and that uh, that can run between forty and fifty thousand dollars for a relatively small operation. And when you talk about increasing volume of produce, is that, does that mean simply expanding your footprint, or what is how does what does that involve? Yeah, so basically uh, on the uh, system that we run uh, is base it is as as dense as as can be. Uh, let us are as close as they can be while at the same time allowing them uh, adequate space to, to to reach their full potential size. Uh, so what we need to do is just expand footprint. There are some people who go vertical, however, we find that a little bit cumbersome, um, especially given the availability of land here. So uh, we'll be basically increasing our footprint to about 10,000 square feet next year. Very cool stuff. And Mark Wilson, an organic farmer, shared a link with me, a group called Common Ground. And part of their insulation is going to be soap bubbles between uh, layers of plastic. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah, I did hear of it, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of strange. So given this is relatively new technology, relatively new industry, the value of hydroponics in the United States is about $9 billion annually. Where does government need to pick up the pace to have a better understanding of the opportunities with hydroponics and things to make it easier to get projects off the ground? Point just to a couple of areas where government can do a better job. Yeah, I know in the U.S. they have a fairly sizable industry. However, in Canada, it's among one of the one of the world leaders, actually, in places like Leamington, Ontario. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of funding, I mean that's the main thing because of the intensive capital intensive nature of the of the uh, of the operation there are already some very good programs i'll say that we had quite good uh, relationship with the canadian agricultural partnership and some different funding uh, organizations as well uh, so there are there are avenues that you can exploit right now i know in quebec uh, they they did uh, put put forth a a uh, idea to expand or or, uh, or double their double their production of greenhouses uh, by 2025 or something. And with that, they offered a, uh, a preferential electrical rate because the operating costs in terms of electricity can be a very hefty uh, hefty burden. Uh, so just decreasing the rate of operation or the cost of operation would be, uh, would be a good start. And they'd be helping the, the province and the government hit its own self-assigned targets. So there's a lot of upside to this. And number one, you can do it anywhere, and you can do it year-round, very much unlike some of the traditional methods of farming that we're all familiar with. Uh, any final thoughts this morning, Timothy? Uh, no, I think we just about covered it. But uh, like I said, we still need uh, we still need a um, 
a healthy uh, healthy focus on the staples, I think. So soil production, I don't think hydroponics will never replace soil production. No. That's still something that we need to really, really pursue aggressively. Uh, but in terms of crops such as nutrient-dense crops like lettuce, tomato, strawberries, these things can uh, can certainly be helped by hydroponics and it's, uh, it's the way of the future, I believe, in terms of these, these growing. It sounds like it. And soil production, you know, even some of the lapses with mandated crop rotations, what have you. There's a lot to these conversations that we need to entertain, but I'm really pleased you made time. I wish you and your and Dawson and others out at Greenhead Growers the very best. Stay in touch. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Timothy Collier, co-founder, co-operator, Greenhead Grocers. Final break of the morning. Trevor, you're next to talk about the Arctic Winter Games, and I think we maybe have an update come from Hubert Daw, the business manager for Teamsters Local 855. Of course, representing those 100 paramedics and ambulance operators, who went on strike and, of course, now been labeled as essential services. The exercise now is to uh, arrive at an essential services agreement with the employer. We'll hear from Hubert after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Trevor, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. How about you? Good. Good. I just want to uh, call in and talk about the uh, Arctic Winter Games that uh, started back up again this week since uh, 2018. What do you know about them? Um, not much. I just been what I've been seeing on the the television. They don't get a whole lot of uh, coverage. But uh, yeah, the Arctic sports category of the uh, of the games really uh, is impressive to watch. I mean, there's several unique events that highlight like the athletes' endurance and the, their athletic uh, strength. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the knuckle hop. I have, uh, as a matter of fact, yeah. Yeah. You picture yourself in a push-up position with your knuckles uh, parallel with your body. And, uh, yeah, trying to hop across the floor to get to the finish line. Yeah, it's an exercise that boxers do as well. So there's all the traditionals that you can think of. Uh, snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, alpine figure skating, gymnastics, hockey, snowboarding, and whatnot. But then there's a full category of what are called Arctic sports, of which I'm not familiar with very many of them. I'll uh, admit that freely. One that I see that I think is unbelievable is the Alaskan high kick, for one. There's another one called an airplane, head pull, knuckle hop that you just described, the one-foot high kick. So there's some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, um... Today, well, I don't know if it was today or yesterday, there was the uh, the two-foot high-kick final between uh, the two female competitors. And uh, I believe the winner was uh, Veronica McDonald. And uh, it's amazing to see them jump with two feet above their head. And oh, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah I have seen some I of this in action. I realize that some of the teams that compete are uh, all the way from Greenland. Alaska, and then, of course, all the northern communities. Surprised uh, some of the Scandinavian countries don't get involved in uh, competing at these games in uh, Fort McMurray. Yeah, fair point. I mean, I know both of the territories, Nunavik, Nunavut, uh, actually uh, northern Alberta represented. No one from this province and outside of Greenland. I don't think, well, Alaska, of course, an American state. I don't think there's anyone from other than Canadians involved, other than Alaskans and folks from Greenland. But it looks like fascinating sports. Oh, absolutely. Have you ever been to uh, Fort Mac? I have been, yep. Did you go to the facility? No, I did not. It was was in the wintertime, as a matter of fact. I was up there, and I'm going to say that was in maybe 1993.
three or something. It was in and out. It was there for hockey. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I got to tour the facility up there in Port Mac once, and it's a definitely a world class facility. You can play any sport in that building. Very cool. Including cricket. Oh, is that right? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, so the games are actually on right now. They open on the 29th. They run to the 4th of February. And, you know, it's you know you compare the coverage that different events would get to this very little coverage of the Arctic Games anywhere out there. I had to go searching for it uh, when compared to other events and the notable sport events that people can think of. Uh, anything else you want to say about it this morning, Trevor? Uh, no, that's it. Just I'm, wanted to highlight it and bring it up. Yeah, so the the name of the center is probably sponsored by an oil company, but it's the it is, yeah. it's uh, McDonald Island or is that yeah right? something like that something like that yeah Trevor, good to have you on the show. Thanks for telling us about it. Okay, you're welcome. To, uh, have a good take day. care. You too. Bye bye. There's Trevor talking about the Arctic Winter Games, and you should check out some of the Arctic sports that are in their own category in the games. Amazing stuff. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the business manager for Teamsters Local eight fifty five. That's Hubert Daw. Hubert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How's this day going yet? This day is keeping me going. <laughs> That's a good point, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So where are we here? So after the legislation was passed, which your group were in favor of, and getting the essentials, essential services title, I guess would bolster your opportunity when you present yourself in front of a binding arbitrator. But then the next step was to formalize an essential service agreement with the employer. Where are we? Well, we were supposed to have a meeting this morning to uh, negotiate that essential service agreement. Um, the uh, Army Negotiating Committee showed up in full force. Uh, the employer, again, did not show up to today's meetings. And when I questioned the individuals that were sent as representatives on behalf of the employer as to if they could negotiate, the first response I got was 100% guaranteed. But when I went and clarified the issue, they came back and said, no, we can't do that. So it's, you know, the, the employers trying to put all kinds of stipulations on, on the agreement. We spent the last week, you know, diligently working on getting an essential service agreement put together, to, you know, to have a, a valid offer to present to the employer this morning. And as I said, the employer just didn't bother to show up. I apologize for calling in so late, but I did have to bring our members up to speed on what happened prior to this. So I really appreciate you squeezing us in here on the end of your show. Happy to do it. Just talk about the different areas that will be negotiated inside an essential service agreement. What exactly are you working on? The the essential service agreement basically lays out the minimum number of ambulances and the paramedics and EMRs that will be required to keep those ambulances going, as as, as well as the number of dispatchers that we're going to require there to be able to take those calls and ensure that those ambulances get dispatched. Uh, we've sat down, we've looked at all seven of the services, and I, I have to I have to add in tremlets on all of them now because their contract is up in March, and the employer did say that they'd like to have the agreement in place for them, which fits in with the 180 days that's laid out in this new legislation. So we were okay with that. Um, you know, so we, we, we have sat down. We have a very detailed plan laid out as to how, uh, what, you know, what services we are willing to provide and whatever else. But as I said, unfortunately, the employer chose not to show up this morning nor send anyone who could negotiate. So it's just a repeat of what happened with our last chance meeting back in December of uh, last year. If I remember correctly, because I got a lot of stuff uh, pounding around my head, wasn't one of the upsides of this legislation that would make it uh, unavailable for the employer to so-called drag their feet? Well, the, the thing is now, we, we know that this is the stance that the employer has taken, so now we, uh, we will follow through with the, 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 the guidelines that are laid out in the Act. 
Uh, we will be making an application to the Labour Board to uh, impose an essential service agreement on us. And then we'll, we'll, we'll be also seeking to have binding arbitration administered. I think it's been very, very clearly demonstrated this employer is not willing to negotiate. And as, you know, as we said, for our, our support of this program became because we wanted that essential service designation. We wanted the, the ability to have binding arbitration. I think we can clearly demonstrate now the employer has no intent on negotiating, so now we'll leave it up to an arbitrator to decide uh, what, what is in the best interest of the, of the ambulance services in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. There was one very specific case regarding ambulance service intrapassy. So I think I heard Mr. Fewer say until there's an alternative in place, whether it be the health authority or otherwise, that that service would remain. Do you know any more about it than that? That's that's he's um, you know even though we do represent the paramedics and EMRs that work in that service, we still have not received official notice from the company that they were pulling the service out of that area. All the information I have is through news media outlets such as yourself. Yeah, it's a long road. When's the contract expire? One more time. Uh, the contract expired in March of last year, and the uh, in March of this year, we'll be seeing the trendless contract expire, and the uh, and six of the ones that were open for monetary. I appreciate the update here this morning. It's unfortunate it is the one you're offering, though, with the employer not showing up to the meeting. Oh, my. So anything else, Hubert, before we say goodbye? Uh, that's that's it for this morning. I will keep you up to par uh, as, as things develop. But uh, as of right now, that's that's where we sit with, uh, with our negotiations. Keep us in the loop. Stay in touch. Thank you very much. Take care. You too, Hubert. Bye-bye. As Hubert Tye is the business manager. For the Teamsters Local 855. So it looked like we were on a positive road with the legislation that was very quickly passed in the House of Assembly. But, of course, until there's a negotiated essential services agreement, we're still at a quasi-standstill. So not a great update, but one we needed to bring to your attention. All right, final check-in on the Twitter box this morning. Lots of commentary flowing around uh, food production, whether it be Common Ground and their greenhouse. And, of course, there's been many groups that have reached out to us. Uh, fresh produce out in, I believe, I forget, I'm not going to say the community because I forget. And then, of course, we had Timothy Collier on from Green, what was it called? Greener Head Grocers? Greener, Green Head Growers. Anyway, that's good stuff. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.